It's Christmas Eve, it's 8 o'clock, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz with the hope that you're able to share the holiday with cherished family and friends. This year especially, being with them takes on a special meaning. But whether you're on your own or surrounded by loved ones, We've got some radio memories that'll make your Christmas a little more Christmassy. Lionel Barrymore in Orson Welles' production of A Christmas Carol, James Stewart in a retelling of the same tale on The Six Shooter, plus Our Miss Brooks, Nightbeat, Jack Benny, Father Knows Best, and Yuletide music from New World A-Coming. So get a little closer to the fireplace. What, no fireplace? Hold on a sec. There you go. That's how radio works here on a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast. Maybe it's because his name begins with the same two letters as Christmas, but whatever. Charles Dickens is responsible for many of the ways we've observed the holiday for nearly 200 years. Gift-giving, snowfall, Christmas dinner, an emphasis on children and family, and even the greeting, Merry Christmas, can be traced back to Dickens's Christmas stories, especially the classic of all Christmas classics, A Christmas Carol. We'll hear several adaptations of it this weekend, tonight, tomorrow at 8 on a Christmas night recollection, and just before that, at 7 p.m. tomorrow, the Ford's Theater radio adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Right now, though, we're going to hear from the second-place finisher in the Christmas author sweepstakes, the immortal Hans Christian Andersen. One of the Christmas traditions of old-time radio and of our shows comes from Father Knows Best. It's Robert Young's portrayal of the beloved Danish writer. Here it is, as it appeared on December 21st, 1950, and NBC as the holiday offering of the series, Father Knows Best. Mother, is Maxwell House really the only coffee in the world? Well, your father says so, and your father knows best. Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons, brought to you by Maxwell House, the coffee that's bought and enjoyed by more people than any other brand of coffee at any price. Maxwell House, always good to the last drop. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." Kathy. I'm sorry, Daddy. Oh, Kathy, did you drop another box of ornaments? Well, they slipped. They slipped, did they? Margaret, what's the matter with that child? I asked her to do a perfectly simple little thing. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Please continue. Thank you. (laughs) 
In Springfield, the streets were all covered with snow, and lights blinked a path for St. Nicholas below. Ye gods and little fishes, now what happened? You blew out a fuse, Dad. Oh, don't be ridiculous. How could I do a silly thing like that? Easy. What? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, I said you were putting too many lights on one circuit. Oh, you did? Well, go get a flashlight or a candle or something. How do you expect me to... <clears throat> oh, I'm awfully sorry. I assure you this wasn't intentional. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Andersons, gathered as snug as could be, sat waiting for Father to finish the tree. When out in the hall there rose such a clatter... I'll get it. Hello. Oh, hello, Janie. No, we're just trimming the tree. Who is it, dear? It's only Janie, Mother. Well, tell her you call her tomorrow. And come back and hear where you belong. Or do I have to trim the whole tree by myself? I'll call you tomorrow, Janie. Hmm? Oh, it's my father. He won't let anybody else touch the tree, but if you aren't there to watch, he makes out like ten men. Nine dead and one dying. Okay, Janie. Easy breezy, you'll slide a mile. You may go ahead now. You'll never know how grateful I am. All right, boys. When out in the hall there arose such a clatter... Kathy, will you please leave the presents alone? Gee whiz. When out in the hall there arose such a clatter... Oh, well, what's the difference? What I say won't matter. Go ahead, Jim. There. I guess that does it. Well, how does it look? Oh, it's beautiful, dear. Really beautiful. Mm-hmm. The angel's crooked. Certainly is not. That's the straightest angel I've ever seen in my life. Okay, then the tree's crooked. <laughs> but doesn't anything ever satisfy you? I'm satisfied, but I thought you'd want to know. Something's crooked. Jim, dear, it's getting late. It took me three hours to trim that tree, and what thanks do I get? Something's crooked. <laughs> I think it looks wonderful, Daddy. Thank you, Kathy. It's certainly different, Father. Thank you, Betty. It still looks crooked to me. <laughs> Jim, it's awfully late. If you're going to tell the children their Christmas story, you'd better start. They'll be up until midnight, as it is. Well... Maybe they'd just as soon not hear the story this year. Oh, no, Daddy. Please. Betty? I'd like to hear it, Father. All right. Bud? If the tree isn't crooked, why are all the bells cockeyed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 sure. I want to hear the story, Dad. Go right ahead. How does the tree look? Great, Dad. Straight as a string. All right. Now that we're all agreed that ours is the most magnificent tree in Springfield... In the whole world, Daddy. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But as long as we all agree that it's a pretty nice tree, let's sit down and I'll begin. Now, once upon a time, about a hundred years ago, there lived in the small Danish town of Odense a man whose name, like ours, was Anderson. He was a tall man thin and gaunt, not too pleasing to the eye. But he was a friendly man, gentle and kind, and his heart held so much love that the children of Denmark took him for their own. One cold, brisk day in December, the day before Christmas, as a matter of fact, this gentleman plodded down the main street of Odense. 
The cobble street was covered with snow, and aside from their jingling bells, the sleighs were soundless as they moved swiftly along their way. In the doorways of the snow-capped buildings, peddlers called their wares. Candles for the Christmas tree, holly to deck a festive mantle with bright red berries and verdant leaves. Yule logs for a flaming fire. Anything your fancy might desire. Mistletoe, a sprig of mistletoe for your door, my dear. Mistletoe, mistletoe. Good afternoon, Fru Meisling, and how are you this lovely, clear day? Hello, Herr Anderson. How could I be? I grow old and weary, and my bones are full of aches and pains. Old? No one is old, Fru Meisling. As long as the heart is young and the spirit is gay, no one grows old. And what about the feet? <laughs> Look, Herr Anderson. Holes in my shoes. How can your spirit be gay when you must stand in the snow with holes in your shoes? That is easily fixed. Herr Bremer has the skill of a genius. In one minute at his cobbler's bench, he can make your shoes like new. Herr Bremer, that thief, that scoundrel. Do you know, Herr Anderson, I have heard that Herr Bremer uses cardboard instead of leather. Cardboard, mind you. Room, Risley, I'm surprised. You have been looking in the hobgoblin's mirror. Ah, Herr Anderson, you and your hobgoblins, those are fairy tales for children, not old women. Fairy tales? You think that the stories I tell are not true? Room, Risley, I am shocked. Ask any child in Denmark, and he will tell you I speak nothing but the truth. About hobgoblins? Well, perhaps I exaggerate a little. But in my stories, people do not gossip. People do not spread rumors. No one says that Herr Bremer's leather is mostly cardboard, unless they have looked in the hobgoblin's mirror. But Herr Anderson, I have been told, how else does Herr Bremer grow rich? He works hard. He is frugal. And he has a good heart. The one who told me she has a good heart, too. Then it was she who looked in the hobgoblin's mirror. Fru Meisling, this was an evil goblin, one of the very worst, for he was the demon himself. One day he was in a wonderful humor, for he had fashioned a mirror, a very peculiar mirror which would appeal only to a goblin of this very low order. You see, anything good or beautiful that was reflected in this mirror immediately shrank to almost nothing. But anything evil or ugly was instantly enlarged out of all proportion. That was very amusing, the demon thought. And then he had another idea, a truly evil idea. Whenever a good, kind thought passed through a person's mind, it was reflected in the mirror as a grin. And even the hobgoblins themselves had to chuckle at this artful invention. They scurried about with a mirror until there was not a country or a person in the whole world who had not appeared all twisted and misshapen in this demon's glass. And then, then, Froom Risley, it happened. The hobgoblins decided to take their mirror up to heaven, too. They wanted to mock the very angels themselves. So they flew higher and higher and higher into the sky, closer and closer to the realm of angels, and the higher they flew, the larger became the grin in the mirror. The thoughts of the angels, pure and kind as a thought can be, shook the mirror so that it plummeted to earth, where it was shattered into a hundred 
million pieces. And that was very sad, Fru Meisling, for some of these fragments, no larger than a grain of dust, still float about the world. Each of them carries with it just a tiny bit of the hobgoblin's power. Each little piece makes one see evil where there is good, ugliness where there is beauty. Fru Meisling, I think I see it now. In the corner of your eye, a tiny speck. Let me take it out. Yes, Mannheer, take it out. Please, take it out. <laughs> Fru Meisling, you are trembling. There's no need to be afraid. Ach, Herr Anderson, you and your stories, you make me forget. That is too bad. I wish only to make you remember. Herr Anderson, about her Bremer, I should not have spoken as I did. Will you forgive me? There, it's out, that evil piece of glass. You see, it's as easy as that. You are a very good man, Herr Anderson. Here, take this sprig of mistletoe. It will cost you nothing. I shall treasure it, through Meisling, to the end of my days. Oh, go away before you charm the buttons off my shoes. <laughs> Goodbye, Fru Meisling. And a Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Herr Anderson, and God go with you. Mistletoe, a sprig of mistletoe for your door, my name. Well, mistletoe. I'll wager I cut a handsome figure with a sprig of mistletoe pinned to my coat. Very handsome indeed. I shall say to Jonas Collin, I need no advance, you skin flint of a publisher. See, who but a wealthy man could afford mistletoe for his coat? That's just what I'll say. Ah, yeah. Oh, well. Come in. The door's unlatched. Good afternoon, Jonas. Am I late? Yes, you're late. But then when are you ever on time? Well, a sprig of mistletoe. Such affluence. Oh, it is nothing. Nothing at all. Poor Fru Meisling. She gives away more than she sells. I... Uh, yes. Uh, she's a very good woman. Jonas... Sit down, my friend, please. We must have a very long talk. Then you've read my new stories. Yes, I've read them. Tell me, what am I going to do with you? That isn't important. What are you going to do with my stories? What can I do with them? Nothing. Jonas, if only you could understand... Understand? Hans Christian Andersen, you drive a man beyond understanding. You write like an angel. Your words have wings, and you waste them. You throw them away on this drivel. Jonas, you're not being very kind. I'm being truthful. Hans, why do you do it? Why do you persist in this foolishness? Foolishness is a point of view, my friend. I am very happy with what I write. Good. Be happy and be poor. With your talent, with your imagination... You could write the great Danish novel. A play which would pour money into your pockets. I am happier as I am. Writing the things I feel I must write. But why, Hans? Tell me, why? Must there always be a reason? All right, you shall have a reason. I am in love with all the people of all the world. And I have a message for them. A message which I can best plant in the spring when the earth is green and the world is very young. It is a simple message, Jonas, of love and faith. And it takes root swiftly in the hearts of children. That is why I write for them. That is my life. That I shall continue to do. Now you have your reason. Hans, you are a fool. I know. Do I get my advance? All right. 
but only because I am a fool, too. <laughs> Good. Then the world is not lost. If there is a rich fool for every poor fool, all will come out right in the end. Goodbye, Jonas, and uh, thank you for your advice. And the advance. Oh, particularly the advance. A Merry Christmas to you, Jonas. Uh, perhaps if you were to smile just once, Fru Meisling might give you a sprig of mistletoe. Merry Christmas, Hans. God go with you. Oh, my poor friend. My poor foolish friend. He thinks of nothing but good for humanity. And life gives him so little in return. His heart is so full of kindness and love. And on Christmas Eve, he is the loneliest man in all the world. said he couldn't put Mr. Anderson's stories in a book. But they are in a book. I have it. I know, Kathy. You see, he didn't really mean it. He published the stories all the time. And he sold them in every country in the world. But if the man said he wouldn't... Kathy, stop asking so many questions and let Father finish. Gee whiz. <laughs> Go ahead, dear. All right. Well, after Hans Christian Anderson left the home of his publisher... He walked slowly through the streets of Odense. He walked for hours, looking at the bright candles burning in all the windows, at the holly wreaths hanging on every door. People nodded to him as he strolled by, smiled at him and wished him a Merry Christmas. And then, after he passed, they shook their heads sadly and sighed because of his loneliness. You see, they too thought of him as a lonely man, childless and desolate. And when he reached a narrow, crooked street on the edge of the city and climbed the long staircase that led to his room, it began to seem as if perhaps the people of Odense were right. It was a very simple room, bare as a room can be. There were no rugs on the floor, no pictures on the wall, but strangely, he didn't seem to mind. A tiny fir tree stood green and shimmering in a corner, and a comfortable fire burned warm and bright in the fireplace. Hans Christian hummed a cheerful song as he bustled about the room. And then, moving slowly down the narrow street, he heard the carolers come.
wonderful, my friends. A Merry Christmas, Hans Christian. And a Merry Christmas to you, to all of you. May God's blessings be on you to the end of your days, bring you great joy and happiness. Thank you, Hans Christian, and God go with you. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come. How can they say I am a lonely man? What man can be lonely with friends such as these? What man can be sad on a night such as this? On every side, goodwill and peace. In every heart, love and kindness. No, if ever I am sad, it is not on the eve of Christmas Day. Ah, finally they are here. Come in. Come in, my children. There you are, my children. All my children have come home to see their father. And look at you. What wonderful, wonderful children you are. How you've grown. We've missed you, Father Hans. And I've missed you, Goethe. I've missed you all. My little tin soldier. I'm a big tin soldier, Father Hans. You will always be my little tin soldier. And the nightingale. Karen with the little red shoes. Hello, Father Hans. And the Snow Queen. How are you, Father Hans? Look at him. How my ugly duckling has grown. <laughs> Father Hans. Big claws and little claws. Thumbeline. The shepherdess and the chimney sweep. All of my children are here. All of them. I am the happiest father in all of Denmark. Father Hans. From all of their storybooks they have come. From nursery shelves all over the world. Father Hans. What a merry Christmas this shall be. What a merry Christmas indeed. Father Hans. Tin soldier, why must you always interrupt? I have a question, Father Hans. A very serious question I must ask. So soon, tin soldier? I thought first my children would tell me of their adventures, of the things they have accomplished. It has been a long time, you know. Oh, all right. But we must have discipline, Father Hans. They shall speak, but I shall be in command. First, Karen of the Red Shoes. Report to Father Hans. Well, I brought warmth to the children of the world, Father Hans. Good. I taught them the folly of greed and the comfort of repentance. I spread the gospel of love and the wisdom of faith. You did well, my child. You did very well. Be quiet, Duckling. It is not your turn. Gerda, you are next. Report. Well, I walked with children in their dreams and brought them happiness. I taught them the beauty of devotion and the wisdom of perse... Per perse... Perseverance. Perseverance. That's what I did. You did wonderfully, my daughter. Wonderfully well. Duckling, be quiet. It is still not your turn. 
Snow Queen, you may report, but be brief. I kissed a thousand lips, Father Hans, and turned a thousand hearts into lumps of ice. And Father Hans, I'm tired of being cruel and heartless. Why can't I be kind like the others? Because, my Snow Queen, you are vanity. You teach your own lesson. You do good in your own way. That is your fate. Duckling, for the last time I tell Wait, you... wait. Let him speak, Tin Soldier. He's so eager. Speak, my little duckling. I see. Well, you did very well. Very well indeed. I am proud of you. Oh. <laughs> and now, Tin Soldier. Father Hans, I have a complaint. Why do I have to have only one leg? It is very inconvenient. Hmm. If I can spend all of my days in endless dancing, certainly you can stand around on one leg. Stand around? I fight a thousand battles every day. I am the most valiant soldier of them all. Valiant? Pooh. Being gobbled up by a fish? I suppose you call that valiant. Children, please. Please, we must not quarrel. Soon it will be midnight. You must return to your homes. But first, I must give you your Christmas gift. The most wonderful gift I can bestow. I give you all a new little sister. The Match Girl. Welcome, little sister. Well, oh, Match Girl. Father Hans. Yes, Goethe. Why doesn't she say something? Can't she talk? No, Gerda, I fear not. But she carries with her a wonderful gift for the world. Three matches which can bring wisdom and comfort to all mankind. She strikes her first match, so. And to the eyes of man are revealed all the beauties of the earth. The whisper of wind in a leafy tree. A soft crown of light on an angry cloud. Birds soaring through a clear blue sky. The surf as it pounds on a winding shore. All of these and many more our match girl brings to the world. She strikes her second match. And in its light we find truth. Here is the wisdom of man and his conscience. Here is the hope of man and his sorrow. Here is the power of man to build a world of righteousness and justice. Here is peace for all mankind, if man will but accept it. Then, the third match, the most important match of all, for it brings love. Look carefully, my children, and see what it reveals. Love of a man for a woman, of a woman for a man. Love of a parent for a child and the love which is taught to us by God, who is our Father, the love of man for one another. Look again and see how in this love there is no prejudice, how it holds no restrictive covenants of color or creed. See how it glows in the hearts of men, worshiping in the church of their faith, whichever it may be, standing as equals in the sight of God. These are the lessons our match girl will teach. Now it is midnight, my children. It is Christmas Day and there's work to be done. 
and go back to your storybooks, to your countless shelves throughout the world. Teach the children of the world as I have taught you. Teach them beauty. Teach them truth. And teach them that which alone will bring them into the sight of God. Teach them love. Twelve o'clock? I didn't know it was that late. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas Father. Ah, <laughs> right, now, kids, up to bed. Dad. Yes, bud? The tree looks fine. <laughs> well, of course. I knew that all the time. Good night, Father, and thank you. You're welcome, Betty. Daddy, hmm? the duck was cute. <laughs> I think you're cute, too. Good night. Good night, Kathy, dear. Jim. Yes, Margaret? It's a wonderful story. A beautiful story. It makes me want to cry. <laughs> oh, I have a better idea. I'll take my first Christmas present. A kiss. Merry Christmas, Jim. Merry Christmas, my love. To you, to me, to every family in every country, in all the world. A very merry Christmas. And may God bless us all. Father Anderson's Christmas wish, the makers of post-wheat meal would like to add their greeting. In this holiday season, may Christmas bring the most in happiness to you and yours. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Join us again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best. Starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Barkey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. So until next Thursday night, for myself and for the makers of Maxwell House Coffee, let me wish you again a very merry, merry Christmas indeed, and the happiest of holiday seasons. Here is peace for all mankind, if man will but accept it. An inspirational Father Knows Best from Christmas Week, 1950. It came to you on a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. No actor is more associated with Christmas than James Stewart. Nowadays, Will Ferrell or Macaulay Culkin may come close, but who can surpass the quintessential American actor as George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life? Well, we'll listen to that one tomorrow evening on a Christmas night recollection here on WAMU 88.5. Right now, though, it's time for one of those Dickens adaptations I promised earlier. It's an ingenious one set in the Old West on Mr. Stewart's series, The Six Shooter. Charles Dickens's Christmas writings were enormously popular, and he toured the U.S. twice, so it's no stretch to think that Mr. Stewart's character of Brit Ponsett would have known the story of A Christmas Carol. By the way, among Dickens's other writings is a gorgeous essay, What Christmas Is As We Grow Older. We'll post a link to it on our Facebook page. 
From December 20th, 1953, and NBC, it's James Stewart in The Six Shooter. Here's a last-minute Christmas shopping suggestion. Jingle bells, jingle bells, bells of NBC. Oh, what joy to cook and bake while listening merrily. Pots and pans, sink and stove, work goes easily. Kitchens ring with happy chimes when tuned to NBC. What will you hear in your kitchen after Christmas? Bacon sizzling, coffee perking, dishes clinking, and, if you're lucky, a new sound. NBC Radio listening on that new set. The perfect gift to lighten mother's long hours in the kitchen. Kitchens ring with happy chimes when tuned to NBC. James Stewart as the six-shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl, its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC radio network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman, who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. There was a nip in the air, not a freezing, biting, angry nip, but a sort of tingle that made the morning stars shimmer and swung them out of their orbits a little closer to the Earth. Oh, it was a winter nip, all right, but not a hard winter. Not a winter when the cattle would come down from the high places, poking their noses into the ice-encrusted ground. It was a mild winter nip. Mild enough so that the breath of the boy on the pinto turned only a faint gray as he rode toward the campfire where the man was sitting. Howdy. Hello, mister. I see your fire. I, I thought maybe you wouldn't mind if I gave my pony a chance to warm up. Sure, sure. Make yourself home. You heading for Thompson's Corners, mister? That's right. I just came from there. Oh, well, you must have been riding all night. Just about. You see, I'm running away from home. Oh, that's so. Well, it seems kind of a funny thing you'd pick this time of year to run away. So close to Christmas, I mean. I hate Christmas. Oh? It, it's just for kids, anyhow. Well... I heard Aunt Louie say so. Christmas is for children. That's what she said. Johnny's old enough to do with all, all that fuss and nonsense. I heard her tell Mr. Franklin that. Oh, you don't live with your folks, huh, Johnny? No, sir. He died about eight months ago. Oh, I see. Christmas was all right when they... When I was with them. Of course, I was a lot younger then. Oh, yes, yes. It yes. just beats me the way folks take Christmas so serious. Well, I don't know. Is it getting presents made any difference? As if I really cared about that knife. Well, is that what you wanted, a, a pocket knife? I don't want a knife. I don't want anything. I just wish there wasn't any Christmas, that's all. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess you aren't the first person to feel that way. You know, it seems to me... It seems to me I remember reading a story once about a fellow felt the same way about Christmas you do. Just didn't have any use for it. What happened to you? 
Well, I, I doubt if I can call it to mind after all this time, but as I recollect... Now, now mind you, this may not be word for word, uh, but as I recollect, the man that it was about, the one that hated Christmas, that is, well, he he was a real skin flint, he was. He, just as stingy as they come. Yeah, uh, his name was, uh, let me see, uh, Eben, something like that. Eben? Eben, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was it. Well... Being so tight-fisted, this fellow Eben, he, he got to be the richest man in the whole territory. He owned a ranch? Oh, sure, sure. Had, had four of them. Four ranches and store buildings and farms and maybe a bank or two. He was rich. I bet he had a mighty fine ranch house. No. No, no, he didn't have a ranch house. He, Eben wasn't the sort to spend money on a ranch house unless there was profit in it. He, he just lived alone in town, had himself a steady room at the hotel. Well, anyway, one night while Evan was sitting in his room having supper, Christmas Eve it was, well, on this particular Christmas Eve, his only kin, a nephew, lived in the same town. He, he stopped by the hotel. To wish you a Merry Christmas, Uncle, and invite you to our place for dinner tomorrow. Christmas, fiddlesticks, powder I suppose you'd be closing up your livery stable for the occasion. Why, sure, Uncle Eb. And just how are the horses know it's Christmas? Answer me that. <laughs> well, if they don't know it, we will. Can I tell Sally to expect you at three? You can expect me all you like, but I ain't coming. Not at three or any other time. Oh, if you're making so much money, you can afford to be giving parties. Maybe I ought to think about raising the rents on the livery stable. Well, now, Uncle I'll go on and get out of here before I lose my temper. All this nonsense about Christmas... Fiddlesticks. Oh, dear. Well, after that, Johnny, the nephew didn't stick around there. He got out of Evan's hotel room in a regular gallop. It wasn't very long before Evan had another visitor. He was a young fellow, tall, lanky, not very good at speaking. He just plain ordinary cowpoke. He was the foreman of the S&M ranch. Oh, well, it took you long enough to get here. Where have you been? Selling off some of my herd without telling me about it? No, sir. That day you rode by, I was out in the range hunting stray. And a good thing I decided to check up on you, too. What's that cabin doing over by Holly Creek? And who are those people staying there? They're my family. I, I built the shack for them myself. I'm not going to have a bunch of nesters in my property. Tear it down. But well, one of my boys is sick. I, I can't afford that to rent it. That's my concern. It's up to you to keep your family and what you earn. So see that you get rid of that shack tomorrow. But tomorrow's Christmas. Oh, oh, well. Then you'll have plenty of free time to tear it down. I'll be out the day after to make sure you've done it. Good night. Well, it wasn't much use in argument. Quorum knew that. So he put on his hat and shoveled out. Now Evan was alone again. At least he thought he was alone. The clock on the mantel started striking eight, and that's another time for him to turn in. So he put on his flannel nightshirt and reached for the kerosene lamp to set it on the stool beside the bed. And and right about then, the strangest thing happened. What's in tarnish? Johnny, old Eben saw a man's face looking right at him from inside that lamp. Eyes and hair and nose and mouth, whiskers, all, all just as plain as day. Jake! It was old Jake, Evan's partner. There wasn't any mistake about it at all. It was Jake right to a T. Well, Evan sure didn't like the idea of having Jake right in the same room with him. You see, 
Jake had been dead for over seven years. Not that Evan really believed in ghosts or haunts or anything like that. He told himself he'd just imagine all this. I got to get a hold of myself. He, he put out his hand to turn down the wick, but all of a sudden his fingers started trembling. There was Jake again, across the room this time, standing right by the bureau. No! And when the lamp slipped out of Evan's hand, the, the room didn't get dark at all. Jake seemed to be surrounded by a splotch of bright yellow light, and he was wearing the same boots and breeches and leather jacket that he'd had on seven years ago, the, the day he died. But as Jake came closer, Evan could see that he was wearing something else. A small leather saddle strapped across his back. And hanging down from it were two saddlebags stuffed so full of gold nuggets and mortgage papers and land grants that Jake could hardly drag him across the floor. You recognize me, Evan? Oh, sure, Jake. Why, sure, I'd never forget you, but... Well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and why are you wearing that get-up? Always thinking about land and money. Always scheming and conniving. That's why I wear it. And that's why I've come to warn you, Evan. The saddle you're fixing up for yourself is even heavier than mine. But I don't know what you mean, Jake. I ain't done no wrong. I ain't never done folks no wrong. Have you ever done them any good? Any good at all? Oh, why, sure. I've worked hard. I've saved my money. I ain't been a burden on anybody. Why, you should see our ranches, Jake. Oh, the way I've built them up. I have seen them many times. And I've seen a lot more than that, too. That's my punishment. To spend eternity traveling around, seeing mankind with its trials and tribulations, with its joys and hopes. Is that so terrible? Oh, Evan, to watch them and not be able to help them. You'll find out how terrible it is. You'll find out. Well, there must be some way of avoiding this. Uh, you always were, my friend. Hey, Jake, tell me what to do. Evan, you've got to find out for yourself. But how? Tonight, at one o'clock, you'll be haunted by a ghost. Another ghost? Pay him heed, Evan. Pay him some heed. Hey, hey, wait, Jake. Don't leave me without... Uh, 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 Jake. The yellow light sort of faded away and the ghost was gone. It was just like he hadn't even been there. And then... And then something caught the corner of Evan's eye. A little glimmer on the floor. And he bent over to pick it up. A gold nugget. Now where am I to... And then he remembered. Those saddlebags of Jake's They'd been filled clear to the brim with gold nuggets. We're interrupting our story for only a moment, and only to tell you, our unseen audience, that you have helped more than you may realize to make this a very Merry Christmas for all of us on this program. Your being with us each week, your many kind letters have told us that all the work that goes into bringing you the six-shooter has not been in vain, and we're grateful. So, friends, from all of us, Jimmy Stewart and the cast, our writer, our director, engineers, and sound technicians, our best wishes for a happy holiday season. Oh, yes, and before I forget it, beginning December 31st, the six-shooter will be on the air on Thursdays instead of Sundays. That's beginning Thursday the 31st. 
The time of broadcast will be listed in your local newspaper. Thank you. Now, Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponson. any doubt about it, Johnny. Well, what happened then? Did the other spook turn up? The one Jake said was coming to see Evan? Oh, sure, Johnny, sure, yeah. He was right on time, too. Evan was lying in bed, wide awake, of course. He hadn't been able to do much sleep, and he's too scared. You know? it, it was kind of peculiar. Evan was half scared the ghost would come and half scared he wouldn't, you see. But before the sound of the clock had died away, there he was. He's sitting in Evan's rocking chair like he'd been there all night long. And and this ghost was a was a young fella. Oh, maybe 18, 19. All dooted up the way young bucks like to dress. You know, fancy chaps and checkered shirt and a red bandana tied around his neck. Howdy, Evan. Reckon you've been expecting. Yeah, well, I... I, I guess so. You ready to take a little trip? With you. Way back through the years. Oh, but how can I go with you? It's real easy. You see, I'm the ghost of Christmas past. Your past, Evan. Let's shove on. Well, the next thing Evan knew, he and that ghost were standing out on a snow-covered prairie. There was a circle of covered wagons in front of them, and the people from the wagons were gathered together and listening to a tall, white-bearded man. He was in the Bible. Which will beat all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto and you. you shall find the baby. The ghost turned and pointed to a boy sitting away from the others on the tailboard of one of the wagons. Small boy, all oh, about ten years old, with hollow cheeks and his eyes all red from crying. Oh, oh no. It was it was Evan himself. On a Christmas day, a long, long time ago. Not a very happy Christmas, either. It was only a week since the oxen had stampeded and his ma had been killed when she, she fell from the wagon. His pa had died with an Apache arrow in his chest. No, I, I don't want to look at him anymore. Can't you show me another Christmas? Well, it was no sooner said than done. Now, Evan and the ghost were in a bunkhouse. And Evan saw himself again. Oh, he's ten years older than the boy on the prairie, but he was lying on a blanket staring up at the ceiling. And then his pal, Jay, came running in, all out of breath. Come on, Ev. Get a clean shirt on. We got us an invite to a party. Huh? Yeah, the boss is throwing a big shindig. He says he'll fire us if we don't show up. Evan couldn't help remembering that party. Oh, the roast beef and the baked ham and square dancing and the pretty girls in their calico. He couldn't help saying out loud to the ghost. Oh, dear. How I wish I... What was that, Evan? Nothing, Mr. Spurs. Nothing. I, I was just remembering how I treated my foreman today. That's all. After that, the ghost took Evan to three or four more of his old Christmases. And none of them were very happy. Especially that Christmas when the young schoolmarm sitting on the horsehair sofa 
had unwrapped the tiny box Evan gave her and then handed it back to him. It's a lovely ring, Evan. But I can't wear it. Well, you're, you're not caught in somebody else. No, Evan. But you are. You're caught in something else. Bill. Land and money, cattle, profits. They mean more to you than I ever would. I'm sorry. Mr. Ghost, no more of the past. Please, I've seen enough. A man wants to forget. Sure, Evan, whatever you say. And before Evan could blink his eyes, he was right back in the hotel room. But once he got there, he he blinked real hard because all of a sudden the ghost was becoming a different person. He was getting fatter and... His stomach popped out two or three inches, and a few wrinkles creased his cheeks, and finally his shafts turned into a shiny blue serge suit with a heavy gold chain dangling across the vest. Hey, well, what's happened to you? Why are you so different now? You seem to be getting tired of the past, so I thought we might take a gander at the present, if you've got no objections. Well, the hotel room just melted away, and Evan was looking at that cabin his foreman had built on Holly Creek. Well, that cabin sure was crowded. Oh, there must have been five or six children all helping their mother get the Christmas dinner, all laughing and talking, as busy as summer coats. But when their father came in, he had a long face and a tired mouth. And his wife looked up and wanted to know what was troubling him. Oh, I was thinking about old Evan. <laughs> it's not a very pleasant thought for Christmas, Bob. By the way, what did he want with you yesterday? Was it about this cabin? Hmm? Oh, no, no, of course not. Well, let's get on with dinner. Sit down, everybody. Now, where's my Jim, huh? Well, I guess we're just going to have to eat. And Bob looked all around the room. He, he was pre- pretending he didn't see the little fellow in the corner. The boy with an iron brace on his leg and a wooden crutch propped up against the wall. But little Tim, he wasn't going to be ignored. So... Bob picked him up and carried him over to the table. God bless this food, this house, and us and our friends. Even old Evan. Amen. <laughs> the, uh, the family found that part about Evan a little hard to swallow, but they finally managed, and Tim was the last one to chime in. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> Evan didn't want to watch what was going on in that cabin any longer, but the next place the ghost showed him wasn't much easier on him. There was a big party going on at his nephew's house back in the livery stable. And one of the ladies was blindfolded, you see, and, and she was trying to pin the tail onto a donkey. But, but there was something peculiar about this donkey, about the way it, about the way it was drawn. It, it, it looked more like a person than an animal. Well, Eben recognized who it was supposed to be right off. <laughs> you see, folks, I invited Uncle Eben to be with us, but he turned me down flat. So I figured we'd have him here in spirit, if not in the flesh. <laughs> Right back in the hotel room again. That's where Evan found himself. Spirit. Spirit, you showed me the past and the present. What's left to see? The future, Evan. The future. And that's how Evan came to see a Christmas of the future. 
A cold, brittle Christmas. And there are two men standing on a street corner, and the coat collar's turned up so to keep out the snow. Oh, he's dead, all right. This is a doornail. Sure is a Christmas present I never expected. At least whoever handles his property won't be as hard to deal with as he was. Wonder if they'll bother giving him a funeral. And in a frame house over on the side street in the edge of town, a woman was speaking to her husband. Funny. To me, he's been dead for years. Well, I haven't even thought of him since I don't know when. And yet, you know, once, well, once I was real fond of him. Funny, isn't it? Ghost! Who are they talking about? Those men on the street. That woman I used to know. Who is it that's dead? Tell me. And the ghost slowly turned and stretched out a long, thin, bony finger. And there, right at the end of that finger, was a tombstone, all covered with weeds. Eben could barely make out the name that was carved on it. Ebenezer Scrooge. No. No, no! Uh, uh, what's this? Uh, where am I? Where you know I? what? He was right in his own bed, in his own nightshirt, and the sun was streaming through the frosted windows. But Evan didn't stay there very long, not for very long. He got into his boots and trousers as fast as he could, and he dashed down the stairs, out into the street. Well, you see, the stores being closed gave Evan quite a problem. Well, he just have to make Fuzzy Wagner open the butcher shop up, that's all. Of course, Fuzzy didn't much choice, seeing as how the shop was located in one of Evan's buildings. And when Evan told him what he wanted, a turkey and a ham, well... No, 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 no. I'd better make it two hams and send them out to the cabin on the S&M ranch. <laughs> and they're not to know that I ordered them. You understand, Fuzzy? Here's the money and a little extra for your trouble. Well, before Fuzzy could get his jaw shut up again, Evan was on his way, and he headed right straight out to his nephew's house. And Evan was the life of the party, too. Well, the way he carried on, he's laughing and making jokes and telling stories on himself, and he insisted that they use that donkey with his face on it when they played games, you know. Because that's what I've been all these years, a real four-footed, long-eared donkey. <laughs> the next morning, though, that's... That's what Eben enjoyed the most. He was up bright and early and hitched the team to the buckboard and drove out to the S&M, hurrying the horses all the way. Come on, Bess! Come on, Martha! <laughs> it's kept a little lively. If he could just get out there before his foreman started tearing down that cabin. Whoa! Whoa, Martha! Whoa! Whoa! Yeah. Well, Robert? Yes, sir? I see you ain't carried out my orders. Well, it was Christmas. I I just couldn't tell him. I'll do it today. Oh! This is the last straw. I'm not putting up with your shenanigans any longer, young fellow. Oh, but please, that don't... cabin's coming down and no buts about it. And then... Uh, and then we're building a new ranch house in this place. Big enough for you and your whole family. What? Oh, yes. I'm also doubling your wages as of last week. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Bob. Even if I am a day late. No, not a day. More like half a lifetime. But Merry Christmas anyway. And, and as your son says, God bless us. 
Well, that's the way things worked out, Johnny, more or less. Well, that's a fine story, Mr. Real fine. I reckon I know why you told it to me. How's that? So as I'd understand about Christmas and how important it is to do for other people instead of just thinking about yourself. Well, no, no, I I didn't have that in mind, especially. The story just happened to come into my head, that's all. I just... well, maybe if I had to give Aunt Millie something, a present, maybe... What could I give her? I don't have no money. Well, of course, there are lots of things don't cost a penny. Not a single red cent, you know. Hmm? Well, now, you... Let's see. Take that little spruce over there. I'd be real easy to cut that down with a little fixing and maybe a few doodads from around the house. I, well, I'll bet you can make a Jim Dandy Christmas tree out of there. I suppose so. What good's a tree without something to put under it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean, uh, Johnny, uh, you don't happen to know Jim Bender, do you? In Thompson's Corner and his three daughters? He's only got two, Mr. Sarah and Emily. Oh, that's so. That's so. I, I was spending Christmas with them. I, hmm. Uh, it looks like I'm carrying an extra present. It's a real pretty little red bonnet with feathers on it. I couldn't take it, mister. Oh, no, no. I, I wasn't thinking of giving it to you, Johnny. I, but I... I was sort of hoping that you'd show me the trail from here on in. Of course, it would mean you're turning around going back home, but if I was to cause you changing your plans, I'd feel obligated to pay you back some way, you know. Well, I... It would be only fair. Trouble is, I haven't got much money, so if you wouldn't mind accepting the bonnet instead, you'd be doing me a real favor, Johnny. I... Figuring there'll be a whole lot of presents under it. No, no, I don't think so. But uh, just between you and me, I I got a hunch there'll be at least one present waiting for somebody. What are you talking about? Oh, no, no, it wouldn't be fair for me to speak out for Christmas. You know that. You you don't mean he's got something for me? No, no, no. You must get too curious so early. But but I thought he didn't like me. He just hated having to live here with with an old maid. Oh, I guess I just don't know nothing about kids. Nothing at all. I, I don't deserve to get... Well, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I think I'd better get moving along. I, say goodbye to Johnny for me, will you? And uh, I wonder if you'd uh, give this to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell him the little blade on it's kind of dull, but... A pocket knife? Yeah. Now, how did you know? Hold on, man. Oh, God bless you, mister. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
remember now, beginning December 31st, the six-shooter will be on Thursdays instead of Sundays. We hope you'll join us in our new time. The Six-Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. The transcribed story was written by Frank Burt in collaboration with Charles Dickens. Mr. Stewart may soon be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Howard McNear played Scrooge, and special music was by Basil Adlam. The entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents are fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. And now, until Thursday the 31st, this is Hal Gibney speaking. Merry Christmas. Harrison and Anna Lee in the NBC Star Playhouse on the NBC Radio Network. Britt Ponsett's Christmas Carol from the Six Shooter, Christmas Week in 1953. Part of a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast and WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Speaking of a Christmas Carol, last year, 2020, marked a Charles Dickens sesquicentennial. He passed away in 1870. And to celebrate, WAMU collaborated with Ford's Theater on a new radio version of that classic, and we're going to re-air it tomorrow, Christmas Day, at 7 p.m., right here on WAMU. A special souvenir program for the production is available on our website, wamu.org. That's Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol from Ford's Theater and WAMU at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening, followed by more old-time radio on a Christmas night recollection. A very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all from me, Murray Horwitz, our co-producer Jill Arold Bailey, our audio engineers Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog, and everyone here at WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Our next Christmas favorite isn't just one of ours and our big broadcast listeners. It was a favorite of the Our Miss Brooks audience throughout that show's nine-year run. They ended up producing this same script a half dozen times. It's called The Magic Christmas Tree, and for a change, this often wittily sarcastic series gets a little mystical. This version with references to a Tom and Jerry cocktail and to the Disney characters of Mickey and Minnie Mouse, comes from Christmas Day, 1949, CBS and Our Miss Brooks. Our Miss Brooks. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, most of us spent Christmas Eve with our families and friends. But our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, wasn't quite so fortunate. No, my family was too far away to visit, and it seems my friends had other plans. But I made up my mind not to brood about it, and was trimming a rather tiny tree in our living room when my landlady, Mrs. Davis, joined me. What a nice tree, Connie. It isn't really, Mrs. Davis, but it's the only one I could afford. Oh, What did you pay for it? I found it in a vacant lot. (laughs) What I 
like about it is the size. It's not too big or too small. It's just too small. <laughs> I'd like to stay here and celebrate Christmas Eve with you, Connie, but I promised my sister Angela I'd come over to her place. You remember Angela, the absent-minded one? Oh, certainly, Mrs. Davis. She always got a big thrill out of the holidays, even when we were girls. Of course, the poor dear could never remember when it was actually Christmas. And one Christmas morning, she did the funniest thing. What's that, Mrs. Davis? What's what, dear? <laughs> what did Angela do? Angela. Your sister. My sister. The absent-minded one. What did she do? I haven't spoken to Angela in some time. <laughs> what has she been up to? That's what I'd like to know. Maybe I can refresh your memory. Christmas morning, Angela did the funniest thing. Christmas morning isn't until tomorrow, Connie. <laughs> you must be confused. Well, don't worry about it. I only get these spells once in a while. <laughs> well, you shouldn't let it go, Connie. If you don't mind my offering a little advice, I'd like to suggest that you train your mind to concentrate more. I'll do it, Mrs. Davis. <laughs> now, I've developed a little scheme which works wonders for me. Supposing you have trouble remembering where you put things around the house. Well, you just keep repeating the location to yourself with a sort of rhythm. For example, I just chant to myself, the mustard's in the closet, the bread is in the box. The mustard's in the closet, the bread is in the box. The mustard's in the closet, the bread is in the box. Now, isn't that simple? Oh. Mustard's in the closet, the bread is in the box. That's wonderful, Mrs. Davis. If anybody wants a mustard sandwich, you're really ready. Yes. Now, uh, before I do anything else, I want to invite you to join me tonight. Join you? Yes, dear. I'm going over to, uh, uh, to, um... Angela's house? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> She's so cute with that little absent mind of hers. Why, <laughs> sometimes she forgets what she's talking about right in the middle of a sentence and a... Oh, dear me, I hope that cat's got enough milk. Well, I'm sure if we, uh... <laughs> but then, maybe someday, or if it doesn't seem too... And that's why I can't join you tonight. <laughs> Thanks anyway, Mrs. Davis. I'll just spend a quiet evening at home here. But how about Mr. Boynton? Don't tell me he was too shy to ask you for a date on Christmas Eve. Why do you think there's mistletoe on all four walls? <laughs> no, Mr. Boynton asked me all right, but then he canceled yesterday. Said he's going upstate to visit his folks for a couple of days. But don't worry about me, Mrs. Davis. I'll have a gay time. I'll listen to the radio, read, and from this window I can see our neighbor's television antenna. <laughs> but what about the little gifts you've got for Walter Denton and Mr. and Mrs. Conklin and Harriet? When are you going to deliver them? Oh, they told me not to bother. They said we'd exchange on the 26th. The 26th? But I don't think the day after Christmas is the time to exchange gifts. You don't? You should see the department stores. <laughs> that, Mrs. Davis? It's Minerva. Where are you, dear? Oh, she's over by the tree. Here, Rover, uh, Minerva. Isn't it the strangest thing how she bites at the pine needles? I guess the rosin in them appeals to her. I'd swear she likes the taste of it. 
I guess to her it's like a Tom and Jerry, or rather a Minnie and Mickey. <laughs> come on, Minerva, come on over here. We might as well get friendly. We're going to spend the evening together. Well, I'll be running along now, dear. I hope you won't feel too lonely. Oh, I'll be fine, Mrs. Davis. After all, I do have an imagination. I'll hang my stocking up in a little while, and then when I'm pretending that I'm asleep, I'll sneak in and fill it. <laughs> oh, before you know it, it'll be midnight. Midnight of Christmas Eve. I can just picture it. A short, thin man in a black suit comes sliding down the chimney with an empty bag. St. Penniless, the schoolteacher, Santa Claus. <laughs> well, at least you're not bitter. Now, Connie, about my... My sister, uh... Angela. Uh, oh, thank you, dear. About my sister, Angela. Yes? Good night, Dorothy. <laughs> Good night, Bernice. <laughs> oh, stop drinking those pine needles, Minerva. Come on over here. There's a good kitty. Now I'll just settle down in Mrs. Davis's rocker and we'll have ourselves a nice, quiet rock. I've got to exercise more. My bones are rusting. <laughs> oh, it's the rocker. Kind of soothing at that. <sighs> you seem contented enough, Minerva. It was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Yeah! Oops, sorry, Minerva. <laughs> I didn't mean to upset you, Minerva. Oh, gosh, I'm sleepy. Now, who can that be? Expecting anyone, Minerva? That's funny. There's nobody here. I'm here. Where? Oh, leaning on my knee. <laughs> what can I do for you? Well, I'm a salesman, but I don't believe in giving any sales talk or sob stories. All I do is tell you what I'm selling, and if you want to buy, okay, if not, okay. Okay? What are you selling? Well, it's Christmas Eve, and I'm just a small urchin, a little on the underprivileged side, and I'm trying to make a few dollars to get some wood to heat our tiny apartment so that while she's singing to my three sick sisters, my mother's lips don't turn blue. That's what I like, no sob story. <laughs> You're selling handkerchiefs, I'll take six. Oh, well, no, ma'am, I'm selling Christmas trees. It's only a dollar apiece. But I've already got a Christmas tree. But I'll make it 50 cents. But I don't need... How about a, a quarter? Look, little boy. Well, payments can be arranged. <laughs> oh, please take one, ma'am. These aren't ordinary trees, you know. They're magic. Magic? Yes, ma'am. You'd be surprised what miracles will happen to you if you buy one. Well, a quarter isn't too much to pay for a miracle. It's 50 cents. <laughs> I thought you said 25. That's when you sounded tougher to sell. <laughs> oh. Well, before I melt down, down to my coal buttons and the stovepipe hat, here's 50 cents. Well, you won't be sorry, ma'am. Here's the little tree. Hey, it is kind of cute at that. Would you like to come in and help me set it up? I can't. I've got to get right home. My sitter's been alone long enough. Sitter? <laughs> well, what about your mother and the firewood? Well, that's just a routine. My folks are attending a dinner the other bank presidents have given for father. <laughs> With the pitch you've got, you'll have your own bank by the time you're 12. Oh, thanks a lot. Good night, lady, and Merry Christmas. Same to you, you little underprivileged millionaire. <laughs> 
I'll put this tree over here. Maybe we can find some extra trimmings for it in the morning. Yeah. Minerva, will you stop gnawing on those pine needles? I wish I knew what made them so appetizing to her. Now, you come over here and let those things alone. There we are. Well, I guess I'm not the only one that's spending Christmas Eve alone without family or friends. But who can tell? Maybe Santa Claus has something up his big red sleeve that I don't even know about yet. Of course, I do have a squeaky rocker and Minerva. Jingle bells, jingle bells and merry stuff like that. Oh, what fun it is to rock with a big, fat, drunken cat. (laughs) As I sat in the living room Christmas Eve with Minerva the cat on my lap, I couldn't help noticing that the tree which I'd bought from that wealthy urchin had a rather peculiar luminosity. Although there wasn't any artificial illumination, it seemed to glow from deep down in its branches. As I rocked back and forth, I started to get very drowsy. Ooh, little boy said this tree was magic, Minerva. No, I don't believe it either. Still, it is Christmas Eve, and... Some very strange things have happened on Christmas Eve. <sighs> hmm? What, what, what's that? Oh, I, I must have been dozing. Coming! Well, it's Walter Denton. Come in, Walter. Noel, Noel. Joy, you is Noel. <laughs> Gracias. Come on into the living room, Walter. Ah, thanks, Miss Brooks. Here, I brought you this little gift to put under your tree. Oh, that was very thoughtful, Walter. Put it under this tree over here. Okay. Say, you've got two trees, haven't you? Yes, one for Minerva and one for me. Yeah. What? Don't pay any attention to her. She's pine needle happy. Uh, Well, Miss Brooks, as you know, I was supposed to spend the evening nestled snugly in the tight little confines of my own small immediate family circle. Oh, for heaven's sakes, come out of there. You're giving me claustrophobia. But I went to my father and mother and crowed their permission to come over... Wait a minute, Walter. You crowed their permission to... Yeah. Crave, Craven, Crove, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Walter, of course not. Crave, craved. Let's see. Crave, Craven. After you crove their permission, what happened? <laughs> well, they waved my presence for a long enough while for me to deliver to you, Miss Brooks, the little token of my esteem and affection, which is now ensconcing under the tree. Walter, are you still in my English class? Well, sure, Miss Brooks. Well, I'd better bone up a little. One of us is going to flunk this term. Well, it isn't just the gift, Miss Brooks. That's not the only thing that brought me wayfaring from the warmth and conviviality of my own heart. Oh, please don't start that again. I'm glad you dropped over, Walter. And if you want to spend the rest of the evening with your folks, oh, why, there's you no go... rush with them. They've got my present under our tree already. Now, what I'd like to say, Miss Brooks, though, 
is something I've wanted to say for a long while. Yes, Walter? Now, it's a little on the sentimental side, perhaps, for a so-called hep high school boy to be telling a teacher, but it's sincere, Miss Brooks. I'm sure it is. It's something I feel deep down inside of me, Miss Brooks, from whence so many of one's warmer emotions stem. That's whence they stem from, all right. <laughs> of course, even if it does seem over-sentimental or even downright sticky... Christmas Eve seems to be the time that you can say things like this and not sound over-sentimental or sticky. Christmas Eve is the time to say them. I just hope I hear them by New Year's Eve. <laughs> what I want you to know, Miss Brooks, is that I'm grateful. For what, Walter? For my association with you during the past semester at Madison High School. Well, thank you, Walter. I've tried to be a capable teacher. Oh, your teaching was nothing! What? <laughs> I don't mean scholastically. No, as a teacher, you were very adequate. I mean personally. The interest you took in me and my problems. For that, I could never thank you if I lived to be a hundred. Of course, you'd be gone a long time by then. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you, too. You don't know what it's meant to me to have your ear whenever I needed it. Oh, it was nothing, really. I have another one. <laughs> Especially about girls. Gosh, you remember how silly I used to act about girls? Every time one of them looked at me, I giggled like a kid. And then, overnight, I matured. I met the one woman who really mattered. Harriet Conklin. <laughs> she certainly made something out of you, Walter. What, but something. You saw me through the difficult transition period of that amour as well, while Harriet and I were adjusting to one another. It was wonderful to be able to come down to you for advice, Miss Brooks. It isn't every boy who has such an interest taken in him by some intelligent elderly person. Give me back my ear. I can't hear you. Not that you're ancient or anything. Gosh, I've seen girls who don't look as good as you do. Girls? <laughs> what do you think I am? Yeah. Shut up, Minerva. <laughs> By the way, Miss Brooks, I see you got lots of mistletoe on the walls. Were you expecting Mr. Boynton tonight? Yes, Walter, I was. We were going for a wheelchair ride together. <laughs> he had to visit his folks upstate. His folks? Gosh, they must be well along in years. His father's over 50. They may shoot him next spring. <laughs> Look, Walter, while you're here, you might as well pick up the little gift I got for you. Oh, but, Miss Brooks, you shouldn't have. Where is it? <laughs> Under the tree on your right. It isn't much, just a remembrance. Oh, gee, I almost forgot. I can't open it yet. Why not? Oh, you mean you want to put it under your tree at home and open it with your family? Oh, not exactly, but... Well, I'll get it later, Miss Brooks. Oh, there they are now. I'll answer it. There who are now? Come on in, folks. She was all alone when I got here. Then it's really a surprise, isn't it? We should have stayed home Christmas Eve. Besides, it's freezing out. Now, Osgood, don't be so grouchy. Hello, Miss Brooks. Merry Christmas. Why, it's Mr. and Mrs. Conklin. And Harriet, how are you all? I'm cold. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Come here, Minerva. Rub up against Mr. Conklin. Yeah. What's that? What are you... Go away, cat. Why, she seems to like you, Osgood. Or is she hungry, Miss Brooks? She's not that hungry. <laughs> I don't like cats. 
Why doesn't she go chase a mouse or something? You forget, Mr. Conklin, this is Christmas Eve. There isn't one stirring. Say, Harriet. Yes, Walter? There's a lot of mistletoe around this room. I know. It's real pretty. Ah, good. Notice all the mistletoe in this room? What? Oh, oh, that green stuff. Uh, More often than not, it makes me sneeze. Oh, come on, Osgood. Let's see if it does. Oh, now, Martha, don't embarrass me. It doesn't make you sneeze, does it, Harriet? I'm willing to find out. Here's a nice wreath of it on this wall. Yeah. Well, here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Here we are. (laughs) May I, Mr. and Mrs. Conklin? If it's all right with Harriet, it's all right with us. Oh, come on, Walter. We're getting old. (laughs) Gosh, you're sweet, Harriet. Isn't that cute, Osgood? Come here, dear. How about one for your faithful old wife? Well, it is customary, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I'm under the stuff. (laughs) Now, pucker up, dear. Very well. Yeah, yeah, huh? You see, I, t- I, t- I, t- I, t- I told you. <laughs> now let's stop this romantic drivel and act like adult human beings. Miss Brooks, I'd like to take advantage of this visit to inquire as to your plans for the coming year's classwork. Do you have your schedule all laid out? Well, frankly, Mr. Conklin, I haven't had much chance to work on anything. Haven't had much of a chance. If you've been away from school all week, your vacation started last Monday. I know, Mr. Conklin, and that's what I took the week as. I mean, a vacation is something you go on when you get the opportunity to. You don't work on it or during it, unless, even though I didn't actually go anywhere, when my vacation came along, I went on it or was on one, usually. <laughs> And you wanted to be the head of the English department. Please, Osgood, this is no time to talk of school affairs. We're here to spend part of our holiday with Miss Brooks. It was very nice of you to think about me, Mrs. Conklin. It was nice of all of you. Where are Walter and Harriet? Denton, get my daughter away from that mistletoe at once. But, Mr. Conklin, Harriet isn't allergic to mistletoe. No, but I'm allergic to you. (laughs) Harriet's almost irresistible sometimes. Especially alongside of older women like Mrs. Conklin and Miss Brooks. <laughs> Saved by the bell. I'll get it. Why, Mr. Boynton, come in. Oh, thanks, Miss Brooks. I thought you were going upstate to see your folks. Well, I was, but they sent me a wire that they wanted to come down here for a week or so. They'll arrive in the morning, so I thought I'd drop this little gift off for you tonight. Oh, but you shouldn't have. Where is it? <laughs> Just put it under the tree in the living room. Look who's here, everybody. Well, it's Mr. Boynton. Hi there, Mr. B. This is nice. Hello, Boynton. <laughs> Hello, folks. This is beginning to get more like Christmas Eve every minute. Sit down, Mr. Boynton. I'm certainly glad your folks decided to visit you instead of vice versa. Oh, so am I. There's a particularly good reason why I'm glad. There is? Yes. It gives me a chance to see how my guinea pigs are affected by this cold snap. <laughs> Why they haven't reacted at all. What do you expect them to do, blow on their paws? (laughs) Miss Brooks, 
Have you pointed out the mistletoe to Mr. Boynton? Oh, why don't you stop that nonsense, Martha? <laughs> it isn't nonsense. Mr. Boynton, look at the mistletoe. Mistletoe? Oh, oh, yes, a very interesting example of the flora found in various areas throughout the globe. <laughs> An evergreen parasitic shrub, it is indigenous to the regions where apple trees and oaks abound. Now that the lecture is over, may we ask questions? Well, certainly, Miss Brooks. Want to stand under it? <laughs> stand under it? Well, you see, because of certain characteristics in its makeup, an allergy is sometimes aggravated by its presence. I'll take a chance if you will. Come on, Mr. Boynton. Yeah, come on, Mr. Boynton. Uh, just bring him over to this wall here. <laughs> I'll get under it if you like. Well, don't just stand there. Can't you see Miss Brooks is cooking? Well, don't fuss for me. I couldn't eat a thing. <laughs> Mr. Boynton, don't you know what standing under the mistletoe signifies? I know what it signifies to most people, but to me it's just... <laughs> <laughs> well, there goes 85 cents worth of mistletoe Hey, I know what let's do Let's open up the presents right now Well, a splendid suggestion, Walter uh, uh, Shouldn't we wait until just before we leave? Might be less embarrassing that way Well, if you want to open them now Golly, I this one tree is pretty crowded I'll put some of these packages under this little one over here Look out, Walter, you're bumping into one of the branches Look out <laughs> I got the funniest feeling when I touched that branch. What kind of a feeling, Walter? Well, you're Harriet Conklin, aren't you? Well, sure, I'm Harriet Conklin. Walter, what's the matter with you? Nothing. Nothing's the matter with me. It's just that I want to tell you something. Harriet, you've got to change. You ought to try to be more like Miss Brooks. What do you mean, Walter? If you want me to stay interested in you, you've got to be more alluring, youthful, glamorous. Feminine in that real feline Brooks way. Walter, have you been drinking pine needles, too? <laughs> Look at that tree. It, it seems to be glowing. What do you mean, glowing? Just a reflection from the streetlight. This party is giving me the memes. <laughs> Holidays, indeed. Here, I'll just move the tree where it won't glisten in our eyes. There we go. <laughs> Mr. Conklin, happy-go-lucky, fun-loving, gag-a-minute Osgood. Gag-a-minute Osgood? Sometimes I've wanted to. <laughs> Miss Brooks, is that really you standing there? I think so, Mr. Conklin. Why do you ask? Because you suddenly look so different, so intelligent. <laughs> Miss Brooks, I've made up my mind. You are now head of the Madison High English Department. Well, thank you, fun-loving Osgood. <laughs> I'm going to put this wonderful tree where it belongs, right in the center of the room. Give me a hand, Boynton. Oh, yes, sir, Mr. Conklin. I'll just take this end here and... Miss Brooks. Yes, Mr. Boynton? Come here, baby. <laughs> I 
said, come here, Connie. You did not. You said, come here, baby, and I'm here. <laughs> Look, he's taking her over to the mistletoe. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Well, 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 what are you going to do, Mr. Boynton? Uh, just call me Phil, Connie. And this is what I'm going to do. that make you feel? Oh, I feel like I'm in a dream, Phyllis. A wonderful, beautiful dream. Well, what's that? Mr. Boynton, where did you go? Where is everybody? Oh, I must have been dreaming. Well, that's real enough. I'll be right there. Oh, sorry, Minerva. I didn't mean to drop you. Surprise! Surprise! I'm cold. <laughs> Why, it's the Conklins and Walter and Mr. Boynton. But you all just left. Uh, I mean, come in. We thought it would be nice if we spent our Christmas Eve together, Miss Brooks. Yes, and we've brought a few little gifts over for you. I'll just put them under this tree here. Yes, do that, Walter. Uh, aren't you going to ask me why I didn't go upstate, Miss Brooks? I know why, Mr. Boynton. Your folks are coming down to see you. Well, how did you know about that? I just got the telegram. Uh, don't let's get too carried away with the holidays to prepare for the hard school season ahead, Miss Brooks. Oh, let's you... not talk about school affairs now, Osgood. Walter, look at the mistletoe. Yeah. Look at it. Now, just a minute. Before we go through all that again, <laughs> would you please touch that tree, Mr. Boynton? The one on the left with the... Why, it's gone. There's only one tree. Miss Brooks, are you all right? Of course I'm all right. Did I have dreamt that part, too? Uh, Mr. Boynton, would you do me a favor, please? Of course, Miss Brooks. What is it? Would you touch the Christmas tree? Touch it? But... Please, it's important. Oh, all right. There. Nothing happened. Well, what did you expect would happen? A miracle. Oh, excuse me. I'll be right back. Well, I'm a little urchin, and I'm sewing magic Christmas trees. But you just... Please buy one, lady. They only cost 50 cents apiece. 50 cents? That's right. Here's two dollars. Give me four of them. <laughs> Our Miss Brooks and its perennial holiday favorite, The Magic Christmas Tree, from December 25, 1949. You heard it here on a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show, and Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. And please visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. One of the secrets of writing radio and TV comedy is to establish clear traits and foibles for your characters. You can then put them in a variety of situations so that hilarity ensues week after week. The main feature of Jack Benny's character was stinginess. So Christmas, a time for generosity and buying presents, was the perfect comic situation for him and for his writers.
We're about to hear the first of many Christmas shopping shows from Mr. Benny. It comes from 1946, and the whole gang is on hand. Mary Livingston, the singer Dennis Day, the announcer Don Wilson, band leader Phil Harris, the racetrack tout, the floor walker, and the unfortunately stereotyped characters of Rochester and Mr. Kitzel. There was a big coal miners strike in 1946, and there's a joke about the pale-faced comedian Fred Allen. With the voice of tobacco auctioneer L.A. Speed Riggs, here's the first of what became an annual Jack Benny tradition, the Christmas shopping show from NBC's Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny. Starring Jack Benny with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Christmas will soon be with us, and millions of people are rushing around making hasty last-minute purchases. So let's go back to last Monday and look in on a local department store in Beverly Hills. you made up your mind yet, mister? Well, well, I don't know. That was Monday. We now bring you up to Wednesday. Same store. Now, look, mister, you've examined them both very carefully. Haven't you made up your mind yet? Gee, I... I don't know which one I want. That was Wednesday. We now bring you up to Saturday. Same store. Gosh, I... I wish you hadn't shown me both of them. Let me see that first one again, will you? Look, mister, I got a wife and five kids. I haven't been home in a week. Now make up your mind, will you? Gosh, I, I can't decide. This one looks nicer, but the, the other seems to be more durable. Oh, Jack, for heaven's sake, shoelaces are shoelaces. <laughs> Mary, when you're buying a gift for somebody, you don't rush into things. Now, let's see. If I take the... Oh, pardon me. Hello? Yes? Oh, thanks. Thanks for telling me. Goodbye. Gee, it's so hard. Look, to... mister, I want to go home. I got six kids now. <laughs> oh. Well, congratulations. A new baby. Do you mind if I buy something for the little fellow? No. No, why don't you buy him a razor? <laughs> A razor? Yeah, by the time you pick it out, he'll be old enough to use it. Hmm. That's an old joke. It was new when we came in here. Well, look, mister, I'll take these shoelaces, the, the shorter ones. Well, thank heavens. Now do you want the metal tips or the plastic tips? Here we go again. I'll take the plastic ones. The metal ones rust. You're right, Jack, but of course you know the plastic ones crack. Oh. Well, then wait a minute. Uh, let me see. If that phone rings again, I'm going to punch you right in the nose. <laughs> all right, all right. Give me the metal one. Yes, sir. I'll pick them up later. I'm opening a charge account. <laughs> uh, come on, Mary. 
Mary, you have my Christmas list, haven't you? Yes, here it is. Uh, what does it say? It says, uh, Dear Jackie boy, I couldn't meet you last night because a customer spilled a chocolate soda all over my uniform, so I have... The list is on the other side. <laughs> Give it to me. Uh, wait a minute, Jack. Who's Josephine? It's a little blonde car hop at Simon's Drive-In. She used to work at the Glendale branch, but they promoted her to Beverly Hills. Gee, I, I hope that chocolate soda incident doesn't send her back to Glendale. <laughs> you know, she's very pretty, Mary. The drive-in uses her picture in all their newspaper ads. Oh, yes, I remember. She was Miss Cheeseburger of 1945. <laughs> yeah. She'd have made it this year, too, but her mustard was on crooked. <laughs> Just goes to show you, fate, a little thing like that. Let me see that list, Mary. Here. Can I help you, young man? Help me? Yes. You've been standing in front of this counter for ten minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm confused. Well, that's understandable. You're confused because it's Christmas time. You've got the Christmas spirit. You're doing your Christmas shopping, and you're looking at so many different things. Well, that explains why I'm confused in December. What about the other months? <laughs> Well, I wouldn't know about that. I'm a coal miner by trade. I'm just doing this to help pay the fine. Oh, well, gee, I'd like to get something for my parents. Oh, your mother and father, eh? Yeah, how did you know? I, uh, I just figured it out. Oh, I know. I think I'll get my mother a new corset. Well, don't you think she should, she should come down and pick out her own corset? Well, Mother hasn't left the house for three days. Is she sick? No, the string broke on her old one, and she can't get through the door. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. We were spending a quiet evening at home when... Boing! Oh, my goodness. Was anybody hurt? No, but my father got pinned to the wall. <laughs> anyway, wrap me up that size 44 corset, and I'll take it with me. Yes, sir. <clears throat> now, let's see, uh, let's see that list again, Mary. Oh, yes, a dozen blades for Phil, some handkerchiefs for Rochester, some little toy for Dennis. You told me at Ciro's last night you were going to buy Dennis a grand piano. Last night, I had four glasses of Muscatel. <laughs> I'm all right now, so where's the toy department? Oh, wait a minute, Jack. What about your producer, Robert Ballin? Oh, yes. I don't know what to get him. Oh, Jack, look. Why don't you get him one of those new canvas golf bags? Yeah, he'd love that. And it's only $15. Oh. Gee, I just happen to think he, he doesn't play golf. Well, why don't you give him a nice cocktail shaker? Say, say, that sounds good. And it's only $12.50. Hmm. I just happen to remember, he doesn't drink either. Uh, what else can I buy him? A knife and fork. Let's see you get out of that. <laughs> oh, stop, will you? I'll think of something. Now, let's see. Hi, Jack. Long time no see. Huh? What? Oh, oh, hello. Come on, Mary. Uh, who was that? Oh, he's a racetrack tout I used to see at Santa Anita. 
You remember we ran into him at the Union Station last year? Oh, yes. Say, Mary, I want to get a watch for my sponsor. I wonder where the jewelry department is. Well, there's a floor walker. Ask him. Oh, yes. Oh, floor walker? Floor walker? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you tell me where the jewelry department is? Yes, but you'll hate yourself in the morning. Look, I didn't ask for any wisecracks. You either give me a civil answer or I'll report you. Now, where is the jewelry department? It's on the third floor. Thanks. Like fun it is. <laughs> Never mind. I'll find it myself. Hmm. It's a fine store to do business with. You walked in here, Lotus Blossom. Nobody dragged you. <laughs> oh, quiet. Come on, Mary. We'll find it. Mary, let's go upstairs and get that watch for my sponsor. We'll take one of these elevators. Well, number five is just about to go up. Yeah, let's hurry. Hey, uh, Jack. Hey, Jack. Huh? Oh. Oh, it's you again. Yeah. Come here a minute. What is it? Where are you going? Upstairs. Which elevator are you taking? Uh, number five. Uh-uh. Number three. It'll beat five to the top by two and a half floors. But, but number five is about to go up. I know, I know, but she's carrying too much weight. Well, I don't know. What do you think about number one? Uh-uh. Local. Can't go the distance. Oh, well, what about number two? Slow starter. Well, it really doesn't make any difference. I'm only Christmas shopping. Okay, it's your money. I wonder where he gets his information. Jack, are we going up or not? So far, all you bought is a pair of shoelaces. Well, at least the... Say, Mary, I was thinking, maybe you were right about those plastic tips. I think they're better than the metal ones. I'll go back and change them. Oh, Jack. Come on, I'm going to change those shoelaces. Pardon me, miss. Uh, would you mind waiting on me, please? Why, yes, sir. What can I do for you all? Well, well honey, child, where you all from? Alabama. You know, that's down south. Well, corn my pone and mint my julep. Shake hands with a fella rebel. Oh, are you from the south, too? Am I from the south? Just run your hands through my hair and feel those bold weevils. Wait a minute. Your voice is awful familiar. Haven't I heard it before? Well, I sure you have, babe. I'm Phil Harris, the Texas Toscanini. <laughs> well, imagine that. Just wait till I tell the other girls that I waited on Phil Harris. Now, what would you like to buy? Well, sugar, I don't know. How would y'all like to see something nice in lingerie? Now, honey, <laughs> you know you shouldn't throw me a line like that. <laughs> Benny's writers always write me that way. His writers? Yeah, every time they get a hold of a beautiful hunk of man, they make him conceited. 
Now, look, let's see what I can get for my wife. Oh, I know. Give me one of them negligees there. Yes, sir. Shall I wrap it as a gift? Yeah, fix the package so she can't peek into it. You know, seal it over with some of that there scotch and soda tape. I'll have it wrapped up for you in just a minute. But look, mister, plastic tips are metal tips. What difference does it make? Well, it's a gift, and I want it to be right. But those other shoelaces are more expensive. I don't care. I'll take them anyway. When he buys shoelaces, money is no object. That's right. Give me the expensive one. All right, all right. You're not hurting me. I work on commission. <laughs> Just wrap them, and I'll pick them up later. Come on, Mary. Uh, Jack, I want to stop them at the lingerie counter. I like this shade, miss. I'll take this pair of two-thread hose. You're wrong, lady. This hose is three-thread. Oh, no, it's two-thread. I beg your pardon, but it's three-thread. Listen, sister, don't argue with me. Not so long ago, I was standing right where you are. <laughs> that settled her, Mary. Well, hello, Miss Abeni. <laughs> I see the Yule time is catching up with you. Oh, hello, Mr. Kitzel. Are you doing your Christmas shopping? <laughs> the things I am buying for my little daughter, I am buying, uh, you should excuse the expression, a piggy bank. Uh-huh. And my little boy is at the age where he is going in passports, but I don't know what to get him. Well, why don't you buy him a badminton set? Yeah, I'll pay a little more and I'll get him a good minton set. <laughs> what? Christmas. Christmas only comes once a year. I guess you're right. But I'm having trouble finding what my wife wants. What's that? A mishmashel. A what? A mishmashel. Oh, no, you mean a mixmaster. That's right, a mishmashel. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you'll find one in the appliance department. Uh, thank you. Well, goodbye, Mr. Kitzel. Goodbye. Mary, uh, Mary, while you're buying the stockings, I'll go over to the toy department and get something for Dennis. All right, Jack. I'll see you later. Well, there you are, Mr. Wilson. How does that shoe feel? Oh, it fits perfectly. I'll take that pair. That's fine. And would you like some extra shoelaces? No, I always get a pair for Christmas. <laughs> Well, that must keep you excited. Yes, I never know whether I'm going to get plastic tips or metal tips. Oh. Well, I'll have these shoes wrapped for you in just a minute, Mr. Wilson. Fine. Uh, don't bother wrapping them as a gift. Here you are. Thank you. Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Miss Livingston. Gee, am I tired. I just walk up to the sixth floor and back. Walk? Why didn't you take the elevator? Well, I was going to take elevator number three, but some man came over and told me it was scratched. <laughs> here in the music department. Oh, I was just going to buy some records. Here's a swell one, Mary. You want to hear it? Yes, put it on. Okay.
gonna pop her the question, that question. Do you, darling, do you do? It'll be easy, so easy, if I can only Look at that list again, will you? Here you are. Gee, I still have to get a present for my old girl, Gladys Zabisco. I don't know what to get her. Do you think she'd like a lipstick? I don't know. She got lips? <laughs> don't, don't, don't be so happy. I, I, think, uh, I think I'll buy her a bottle of... Uh, I think I'll buy her a bottle of perfume. Let's see what else. Oh, yes, I'll have to send something to Fred Allen. Fred Allen? I didn't know you and Fred exchanged gifts. Oh, sure. This year, I'd like to get him something he needs. I wonder what department sells plasma. <laughs> oh, well, come on. I'll get the perfume first. I think it's right over there. Oh, but... look, oh, look. There's Jack Benny. Hello. What, what's that? May I have your autograph, Mr. Benny? My autograph? Yes, it will make me so very happy. Yes, indeed, so very happy. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be glad to. There you are. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Benny. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Who was that guy, anyway? What's the difference as long as he's happy? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the perfume counter. What? Here's the perfume counter. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, pardon me, sir. Uh, I'd like to buy some perfume. Okay, mister. What kind of perfume would you like? <laughs> Well, uh, I don't know. What's popular right now? Well, here's something that's not too strong, yet leaves a trail of broken hearts. <laughs> oh. 
It's called Avec Trade Tambuku My Cherie Trey Bean. What uh, what does that mean in English? Condensation of steam that's been forced through a motorman's glove. So much trouble. No, no, I don't think I'd like that. Well, here's some other perfume called Essence of Smog. Well, I don't know. Mary, do you think I ought to take a bottle of this? Sure, certainly. Uh, how much is it, mister? This is 25 bucks an ounce, and the other one I showed you is 30 bucks. Well, haven't you anything a little more reasonable? Yeah. I even have some perfume for 25 cents an ounce. 25 cents an ounce. What kind of a bottle does that come in? It don't come in no bottle. We keep it on tap. (laughs) On tap? I bet they serve pretzels with it. Well, I don't think I'll take any. By the way, mister, how come they put a fellow like you behind the perfume counter? Oh, my regular job is in a delicatessen department slicing Limburger cheese. <laughs> Limburger cheese? Yeah. Once a month, they send me here to neutralize me. <laughs> well, what do you know? Uh, come on, Mary. Uh, I'll get the perfume later. Let's go home, huh? I'm, uh, I'm tired. Well, don't forget to stop at the notions counter to pick up the shoelaces you bought, the ones with the plastic tips. The shoelaces? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, hey, wait a minute. Did I get the plastic tips? Sure, you went back and changed them. Oh, yeah. You know, Mary, now that I think about it... Jack! <laughs> yes, Mary, I might as well get what I want, and I'd rather have the metal tips. Come on. Oh, look, there's Rochester buying some neckties. Yeah, and that floor walker's waiting on him. Let's sneak up behind him. I think this tie is beautiful. It's very unusual. Yeah, but I don't think my boss would like it. It isn't his style. I see. <laughs> what type of man is your boss? Well, he's medium tall, medium weight, and rather conservative. You mean he's conservative in appearance? It goes deeper than that. <laughs> At least he's subtle. Quiet, I want to hear this. Now, here's a nice tie. Maybe you'd like this one. Yeah, that's a pretty thing. How much is it? It's only $3.50. How much? $3.50. Too bad he would have liked that one. <laughs> oh, fine. Well, if you don't want to spend quite so much, here's a nice tie for 89 cents. Well, that's close to what I have in mine and wallet. Of course, it might be a little too plain for your boss. Is he a young man? No. Is he middle-aged? No. Is he elderly? Wrap it up. <laughs> Rochester Van Jones. Oh, hello, boss. I didn't see you. I know you didn't. Don't be buying me any 89-cent tie. You keep out of this. I'm working on commission. <laughs> well, now. Now, look, Rochester, you've been with me 10 years now, and I've been very nice to you. I've always tried to make things pleasant for you and keep you happy, haven't I? I'd like to hear Judge Goldberg's opinion on that. <laughs> Never mind. Now, I'm leaving you here, and I want you to decide for yourself whether or not I'm worth more than an 89-cent tie. Come on, Mary, let's go. Say, Mary, which tie do you think Rochester's going to buy me, the one for three fifty or the one for 89 cents? Well, if you were Rochester, which one would you buy? I'll fire that guy. 
here we are, Mary. Here's the notions counter. Oh, say, mister. Yes? About the shoelaces I bought. Oh, yes, yes. I've got them all wrapped up. Here you are. Well, I've been thinking about the plastic tips, and I think the metal tips would be much better. No. No. No, no. No. But all I, all I want to do is change them. Change them? Change them, he says. This can't be happening to me. This must be a dream. Look, mister. I've always been a good man. Always did the right thing. Look, mister. Worked hard in the store. A loyal employee. Look, clerk. I when the Christmas season started, they gave us our choice of department. I know. I could have had any counter I wanted. But I took shoelaces. Look. Shoelaces? And Why? Because I thought it would be easy, simple, Mister, metal tips, plastic tips, and we've got rubber tips too. But I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't tell you. Come on, Mary. There's a crowd forming. Let's get out of here. certainly crowded, wasn't it? It sure was. And they had so many people working there. There was Mel Blanc, Gerald Moore, Frank Nelson, Benny Rubin, Leola Vaughn, Artie Auerbach, Sandy Bickard, Pete Leeds, Elliot Lewis. And you know those little wooden soldiers that sang? Yeah. Sounded just like that quartet, the sportsmen. I was going to mention my writers, too, but they wouldn't even come in for the show. They stayed in Palm Springs. I hope they run out of suntan oil. Good night, folks. <laughs> Broadcasting Company. From December 8, 1946, the original Christmas shopping episode of the Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny. You heard it here on a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show. Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years in HD at 88.5 on your smart speaker and at WAMU.org. You won't be surprised to learn that nearly all of the shows you're hearing tonight and that you'll hear tomorrow night on our Christmas night recollection, same time, same station, are programs that have been requested by many of our big broadcast listeners. And when it comes to the dramas, it's worth pointing out that when the holidays rolled around, a lot of the stories centered on characters we'd now call essential workers, people who have to work on Christmas, cops, doctors, railroad employees, and, as we're about to hear, reporters. Randy Stone, the journalist hero of Nightbeat, seems never to have taken the holiday off. He even finds a way to work on vacation 
as in this episode from Christmas Week in 1951. It features an appearance by William Conrad a year before Gunsmoke hit the airwaves, and it comes from NBC and the series Night Beat. Now screen actor Frank Lovejoy comes to the NBC microphone as reporter Randy Stone on Nightbeat. But first, let me tell you about some of our other mystery features heard on this station of the NBC radio network. This Sunday, the Falcon brings you mystery, adventure, and intrigue as he investigates the case of the helping hand. Later Sunday, make a date to hear Lloyd Nolan as he brings you thrill-packed listening as Martin Kane, Private Eye. And every Monday evening, you're invited to tune to this NBC station for Dangerous Assignment. Starring Brian Donlevy. Now there's Adventure with Frank Lovejoy, starring on Night Beat on NBC. NBC presents transcribed Frank Lovejoy in Night Beat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Christmas Eve. Jingle bells, silent night, boughs of holly. Yeah, they say there's a warmth about Christmas that spreads out like a fan and touches everyone. The holiday spirit, it's called. But right at the moment, I'm thinking of one character who was nearly left out in the cold last Christmas. None other than yours truly. Me, myself. Randy Stone. It started out like any other Christmas Eve. An exchange of gifts, a few drinks, some off-key caroling. Everybody killing time until the going-home nod from the boss. Everybody, that is, but me. No, I wasn't going home, because as far back as I can remember, Christmas has been another workday for Stone. I waited around for the noisy holiday gang to leave so I could settle down to work. And then Sam Bullock, the big boss, sent for me, and I walked across to his office. Oh, come in, Randy, come in. How are you, boss? Sit down, Randy. Oh, such politeness can mean only one thing. I'm fired. <laughs> no, this is even more embarrassing, Randy. I'm uh, going to give you a little something in the way of a present. Ah, I'll come back when you're sober. <laughs> When's the last time you had Christmas off, my boy? I can't remember why. Well, you're having this one off. Five days of it to spend with your family. Well, what family? Boss, you know better than that. What'll I do with myself? Well, a man who knows as many people as you do, it'll be the best thing in the world for you. Hey, yeah. Yeah, it might really be something. Say, I could call Alex Stevens. He's been bothering me for eight years to spend Christmas with his family. Sure. Or maybe Alice over in Classified. <laughs> you know, I'm beginning to like the idea. <laughs> okay, well, you'd better beat it before this noble impulse of mine evaporates. Well, you hang on to it. I'm leaving now. <laughs> and, uh, Randy... Yeah? Uh... Merry Christmas to you. Right back at you, Chief, and thanks for the break. The revelers had gone now, and the office was empty except for one man. Old Ed Collins sat watching the teletype machines. He looked up when he saw me. Thought you'd gone, Randy. No. What are you looking so smug about? Our boss gave me five days off. Swell. What are you going to do, go home? Home is a bachelor apartment on 7th Avenue. No, Collins, I'm going to call my old pal Alex Stevens in Decatur and tell him to meet the morning train. Good idea. Hello, 
Long distance? I want to call Decatur, the Stevens residence. Alec Stevens in Decatur. I'll wait. Mm -hmm. Ah, phone's ringing all right. Good, good. (laughs) This little floor, Alec. Eight years he's been after me. Must have an old maid sister-in-law or something. Careful, Randy. Tried to marry me off once when I was younger. (laughs) Should have answered by now. Oh, what's that, operator? Oh, no, no. No use ringing anymore. He must have gone out of town for the holidays. Gone out of town, eh? Yeah, yeah. I guess I'll have to settle for female company. Not home either? Well, that was a screwy idea. I don't know why I went for it. Phoning people the last minute like this? Guy, with the friends you have... Oh, sure, sure, sure. The friends I have. Millions of them till I go looking for one. Oh, there's a Christmas card for you on my desk. Keep forgetting to give it to you. I'll get it later. My folks only live 40 miles out. Boy, would they be glad to have you spend a few days with them. I could call them. No, Ed, forget it. What's a guy like me want with a holiday on Christmas? I'm shoving off, Ed. How about that envelope on my desk? Later. Looks like I might be back to play a little pinochle with you. Now, my ma, all I've got to do is phone No, I'll make God all right. See you later. And have yourself a time. Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas. I didn't want to make any more calls in front of Collins, so I headed for the nearest phone booth. Well, I made another three, four calls. No dice. Randy Stone, a guy who couldn't walk a downtown block without saying hello to half a dozen people, couldn't find one lousy bum would be his friend tonight, Christmas Eve. I went back to the office hoping some big story had broken so that I could put myself to work. Nothing come in, Ed? Not a thing. Even the thugs are home tonight. Anybody phone me? No. Uh, Here's that letter I was telling you about. Oh, thank you. What's that, money? It's a 50 cent piece. <laughs> what do you want? Your autograph? It just says, God bless you, Mr. Stone, signed Catherine Malloy. I don't know any Catherine Malloy. Hey, this is all the earmarks of an office gag and a pretty poor one at that. It's half a buck. Yeah, it'll buy a drink. Say, Randy. Yeah. I, I thought maybe you'd change your mind about going out to my folks' place. No, thank you, Ed. No, no, thank you. My ma, she... No, I said no. Uh... Ed, no, no, thank you. Outside it was snowing, light and fluffy, like it had been specially ordered for the occasion. And the people went about their business humming and singing little snatches of song. You know, oh, what fun it is to ride in the one-horse open sleigh. Yeah, there was warmth and good feeling everywhere. But my mood was more than a match for it, and I was beginning to feel sorry for myself. Like an unwanted cat, I took my mood out to get it drowned at Bobby's bar. Randy, how are you, boy? How are you? Well, what's with this place? It's like a morgue. (laughs) Haven't you heard? It's Christmas. Yeah, I've heard. Will you put a dime in that thing, get something snappy? Okay. There we are. Hey. You lonely, Randy? Get me a whiskey sour, hmm? Yeah. That's the way it is with me, too. 
I don't need nobody. Nobody needs me. <laughs> it's all right, I guess. Only two or three times a year, you wish it was different. You know when it hits me? Christmas, Easter, and May 17th. That's the date my mother died. But Christmas and Easter was a big time in our house. You know, we had 11 kids. Look, why don't you write a book? You act like this was something new to you. To me, it's like this every Christmas. You know, the important thing is don't be alone. How much do I owe you? 50 cents. Here. You know, when you try and fight it, you got to lose. Uh, Randy, are you going into a new business? What do you mean? Well, I thought maybe you might have gone into manufacturing. Manufacturing what? Coins. But, brother, if you are, you've got a lot to learn. This is about the phoniest half a buck I ever saw. Phony? Yeah. Give it to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. That was somebody's idea of a gag. Some half-wit in the office. Ain't much of a joke, I'll tell you. Mrs. Malloy, huh? I'll fix those guys. You gone? Yeah. Hey, well, what's your hurry? You ain't gonna leave me here alone, are you? Wait till somebody else comes in. So long, Bob. Well, you ought to stick around so we can talk, Randy. You're wasting it on me. Okay, Randy, but remember what I said... Don't be by yourself. Whatever you do, don't get to be alone. I stopped at the corner drugstore and bought a couple of magazines and went to my apartment ready to spend a quiet holiday. Seven o'clock. Great. Nice long evening ahead of me. Lots of time to hate the world and feel sorry for myself. I poured myself a quick drink and then somebody rang my doorbell. Yeah, just a minute. Hi. A 10, 11-year-old kid stood in the doorway looking up at me. His face was clean, but his clothes were patched and ragged. He wore a red pullover sweater at least five sizes too big for his skinny frame. Hello, Mr. Stone. Wow, what do you want? Don't you remember me? I remember 10,000 of you. What do you want, a handout? I'm Jerry Malloy. Remember Mrs. Malloy? Who sent you up here? Whose idea was it? McFarland's, the office wise guy? My, my mother sent me. Well, you go back and tell your mother not to send phony coins through the mails. And if your mother happens to be McFarland, tell him that... She said for me to give you this letter. I'm to wait for your answer. Look, kid, take your letter and beat it. Enough is enough. She said maybe... Will you take the letter? Now, come on, what are you waiting for? I'll leave it with you. No. Here, here's two bits for you. Now go tell McFarlane the joke is over. Now beat it before I get mad. Mother said to wish you a merry Christmas. Beat it. I no sooner slammed the door shut when I began feeling like a heel. And I opened the door half hoping I'd find him standing there. But he was gone. But resting on the mat in front of my door was the quarter I'd given him. I picked it up and I stood there with the coin burning my fingers. I knew I wouldn't feel quite clean again until I'd found that kid and made it right with him. Somehow. I had to get to the kid, but how? The logical starting point seemed to be the newspaper office. I put my coat on. I was about to leave when a sharp knock sounded on my door. I opened the door and a policeman came in. Mr. Stone? Oh, yeah, come in. Thanks. I'm, uh, Lieutenant Saunders. Know anything about this? Well, this envelope's addressed to me. Where did you get it? Do you recognize it? A kid came in here about 15 minutes ago and wanted to give it to me. You sure this is the same letter? Well, the writing's the same as another letter I got at the office. Why? What happened? Um, the boy who brought you this letter. What's his name? I don't know. He said it was Malloy, but I don't think it is. 
Give me a description. Oh, he's, uh, oh, 10, 11 years old. Oh, 95 pounds. Light brown hair. Wearing a faded red sweater, patched trousers. What's this all about? Hit by a car. Driver picked him up and took him away. Hit? How bad? Nobody knows. Woman who saw it from a window thinks the kid was dead. The car got away? Yeah. She didn't see the license number. When we got there, we found this letter on the street. And the, the, uh, the kid may be dead? Yeah, it looks like it. Said his name was Malloy, huh? Yeah, that's what he said. Can I see that letter? Maybe there's something in it. Sure. What's it say? It's kind of hard to read. Hmm. Looks like some kid wrote it. Um, dear Mr. Stone, we're hoping that you'll come out to have Christmas dinner with us. I told Jerry not to leave till he brings back your answer saying yes. It's signed Mrs. Catherine Malloy. I don't know a Catherine Malloy. Well, maybe they mistook you for somebody else. I thought it was part of an office gang, and I still think so. Let me go back there and check. I'll call you later. Uh, where do you work, Mr. Stone? Chicago Star. Oh, you're that, Randy Stone. Well, look, if you get any information, phone it into the precinct. Uh, hi, Randy. What's the matter with you? Look like you've been run over by a streetcar. Well, that's how I feel. Collins, you got to help me. Well, if I can, sure. What is it? Now, first of all, tell me. Did anybody in the office plant a phony coin in an envelope and send it to me in a Christmas card? Well, not that I knew of. Who'd pull a crazy stunt like that? I don't know. I got to find out about that kid. What kid? Well, he came to my apartment with a message, and on his way home, he was hit by a car. Bad? A driver picked him up and took him away, and the cops think that he was dead. And you don't know the kid? No. He said his name was Jerry Malloy. He, he said it like it should have meant something to me. But it doesn't. I've never seen him before. Well, maybe it's someone you've forgotten. A guy meets a lot of people in this business. Yeah, that could be. I want you to do something for me, Ed. What? Check with as many of the boys you can reach at home. Find out if they know anything about the kid, and then phone the police and see if they've found him. If you want me, I'll be in the library. What are you going to do there? Well, something that makes me shudder, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's that? I'm going to dig back through all my stories for the past year and see if I can find a Mrs. Malloy. Maybe you didn't use her name. Well, I'll see what I can find. You get busy on that phone. Collins left me alone and I went to work. It's funny how inane some of the stuff you write seems after it's been buried. Only three of the bits offered any idea of who Mrs. Malloy might be. One, about a woman who'd refused to leave a cat in a burning house. Another, about a middle-aged lady bookie. And the last, about a woman and her family who were being evicted from a slum apartment for lack of rent money. The story was about the bystanders and how they dug into their pockets and raised 40 bucks so the woman could get back into her place. How are you doing? Well, I'm not sure, but I think I've got something. Well, I called the boys. They don't know anything about the kid or the letter. You phoned the police? Yeah. Well? They want you down to headquarters. Me? What for? To identify the kid. They think they found him. Dead? Not much chance to live. Where is he? State Hospital. It's a pleasant chore for Christmas Eve, isn't it? Dandy. Well, then I guess they want me to go and see his mother and say, uh, guess what I brought you for Christmas. Oh, snap out of it, Randy. It wasn't your fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I phoned headquarters and they sent a radio car to get me. From there, we went to State Hospital. Lieutenant Saunders was there waiting for me. A nurse led us down a long hallway. 
Severe concussions and possible internal injuries, the doc said. Doesn't think he'll live. In here. This is the boy. Go on, Stone. Take a look. All right. All right. Well, is that him? No. No, that isn't Jerry Malloy. For a minute, I felt a sense of relief. But I knew I was kidding myself. Sooner or later, Jerry's body would be found. And until then and after then, I'd feel the guilt to be mine. You see, by now I knew the kid was on the level. He'd been sent to me with a message offering me a home for Christmas. And in my blind stupidity, I sent him away. Nice guy, this Randy Stone. The cops dropped me off at the paper and told me they'd keep in touch. Well? No, it's not him. What are you going to do? I'm going to find Mrs. Malloy. That 50-cent coin, that's what makes it interesting. Why money in a Christmas card and a phony coin at that? Well, maybe she didn't know it was phony. All right, then. She didn't know it was phony, but why was she sending you money? You lending the stuff out at 15%? What? Hey, wait a minute. You got something there. Maybe she did owe me some money. That woman that was tossed out on the street, 40 bucks we raised for her, she took my name and said she'd send me my five bucks back. Well, can you remember where she lived? It was on the south side. I remember the building. Yeah, I can find her. Collins, I, I can find that kid's poor mother. Well, isn't that what you wanted? I don't know. You know what I really want? I'd like to start this whole evening over again. Think you could arrange it for me? I suppose I could have let the police handle it, but I'd developed a burning need to tell her myself. I hopped into a cab and went scouting for the building she'd lived in. I hoped I wouldn't find it, and yet I knew I wouldn't stop until I did. I found it all right, right where it had always been, pressed between the ugliness of two warehouses. I hung around outside for ten minutes before I could find the courage to go and face it. Apartment six she'd lived in. I stood in front of it and listened to the muffled sounds of a radio playing dance music inside. Well, hello, hello, hello. May I come in? I've got to talk to you. Oh, I'd like very much to have you come in, but my husband, he's a bouncer in the nightclub. Maybe some other time. Look, huh? Mrs. Malloy, I- I've got to talk to you. What about Christmas Eve? Go away. Hey. What, Mrs., did you say I was? Malloy, Catherine Malloy. Ah. Uh, I'm not Mrs. Malloy, and never was, never will be. My name's Mrs. Natty, Carol Natty. You know, the more I look at you, the more I wish I was your Mrs. Malloy. But I'm not. I'm really not. How do you like that? Well, I like it a lot more than you'll ever know. You know where I can find her? She lived in this apartment oh four or five months ago. Never heard of her. Uh, maybe if you ask the caretaker, he'll know. Thank you. Thank you. I'll do that. This woman wasn't Jerry's mother. I'd build a picture of Mrs. Malloy that didn't jive with a slightly tipsy frump staring at me out of hazy eyes. I called him a caretaker. Yes, Mrs. Malloy lived here, but she'd moved a couple of months ago and he didn't know where to. He told me to try Kozlov's grocery store. The storekeeper there was a living city directory. Mr. Kozlov? None other. What can I do for you? 
I'm looking for a Mrs. Malloy who used to live in the Elkin Apartments. I was wondering if you know where she'd moved to. Malloy? Uh-huh. Oh, yes, I remember her, but I don't know where she moved to. A good woman. Didn't owe me a penny when she left. I've got to find her. She was working steady when she moved. Wages every week makes difference. Uh, you, uh, you think some of her neighbors had no way she moved to? Oh, they, they do a big turnover in some of those places. But with wages coming in regular, I think I know how you can find her. How? It's a pattern people follow. When things can't be worse, uh, then they live in places like the Elkin Apartments. But when they're working and a little money is coming in, they move up a notch. That's the way it works. Where is this notch, this step up? Uh, it's a gamble. Uh, but if I was you, I'd try Blake Avenue, uh, somewhere around 20th. Uh, that's the way it goes, from Elkin to Blake. Sometimes back to Elkin. Uh, sometimes not. Sometimes three hours can be an eternity. It was 10 o'clock now. Three hours since the kid had knocked on my door. The streets were full of happy, smiling people, and the snow made everything look like a Christmas display window in one of the big stores. I'd have given ten years' salary to be like the people rushing into the stores for the last-minute presents for Aunt Agatha. I went into the stores all right, but to ask them if they knew where I could find a dead kid's mother. It took me about fifteen calls to locate her. A druggist gave me her address... 1461 Burkell Street, apartment 9. Before going there, I called the office. Hello? Oh, Ed, anybody phone? Nope. I guess I haven't found him yet. Well, how about the mother, Mrs. Malloy? You think she'd have called the police by now? Yeah, you'd think so. Well, maybe she didn't phone because she thought the kid was in good hands. Well, it wasn't your fault, Randy. Well, I've located her. And, uh... Now comes the pleasant part of the job, telling her about it. Uh, how will I start? Uh, Merry Christmas, Mrs. Malloy, and a Happy New Year. May the New Year bring oh, you... Oh, why are you going off the deep end like this, Randy? Yeah, I know, I know. It wasn't my fault. I was just an innocent bystander. So long. I made another call, police headquarters. They had nothing new on it. The kid had turned up, they said... He'd be pretty dead, but he'd turn up. I told him I was going to see the kid's mother, that I'd located her. Lieutenant Saunders thought that that would be a swell idea. I walked down the street to Mrs. Malloy's apartment house, and I stood there a minute. From where I was standing, I could see the sign on top of the Chicago Star building. Mrs. Malloy lived only three blocks from my smug little tower. From Star to empty apartment to Malloy and back to the Star... But that's the way it looked geographically as well as symbolically. Another 20 minutes wouldn't matter much, I thought. So I walked the couple of blocks it took me to get back to Bobby's Bar and Grill. Hi, Randy. You're not making the rounds of the bars, are you? No, no. Uh, make it a double bourbon. Water. Double bourbon? Yeah, double. Not much trade tonight. Ah, oh, later they come. Uh, Randy, why is it hitting you so hard? You scratch a little of the veneer off, and what do you find? A sentimental slob. What's bad about that? Well, then you find that you can't do things that have got to be done. Like what? What needs being done tonight? Like telling a woman that her young son is dead and that 
I had a lot to do with it. You're kidding. I'm not. How do you go about a job like that? Well, how did it happen? Does it matter? No. You think whiskey will help? Close the place up, Bob, and come with me. You don't have to say anything. Just stand there with me. No, 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 no. It's a one-man job, huh? As far as I'm concerned. Well, maybe you're right. I'll see you later. Yeah, I'll see you later. I climbed up the creaky old stairs. It was no better than a tenement house. Only one thing distinguished it from a slum... And that was a cool, clean smell. The walls were torn and the woodwork was scarred and marred, but it was clean. I know it's crazy, but I got a lot of courage out of that feeling of cleanliness. I stood in front of apartment nine, listening. And then I knocked on the door. Who is it? It's me, Randy Stone. Mr. Stone, how welcome you are. Come in. Thank you. I'll... Close the door to the children's room. They are only fallen asleep, and if they hear us, they'll be sure you're Sunday. She walked away to close the door, and I wondered how I'd ever come to forget Mrs. Malloy. Her face was overflowing with a deep spiritual beauty that lighted up the whole room. She came back and sat down near me. I'm so happy you hadn't forgotten me, Mr. Stone. I was afraid you might have. Then when I was able to make a small payment on that loan, I thought I would ask you to come to see us. God will never let me forget what you did for us that night, Mr. Stone. Mrs. Malloy, I... Uh... I don't mean to embarrass you, really, I don't. But I knew if you possibly could, you would share some part of Christmas with us. I knew that the old and shabby furniture would make no difference to you. This humble home... But Christmas began in a humble home. Yes, that's what I told Jerry. Mrs. Malloy, uh, about Jerry, I don't know how to say it. Say what? What is it, Mr. Stone? Well, about Jerry not being home. I, I, I don't understand. The bedroom door opened and a boy walked out. I caught my breath and held it. It was Jerry. Jerry! Hello, Mr. Stone. Jerry Malloy, go back to bed this minute. Oh, no, please, let him stay. Jerry, I heard that you were hurt. Oh, that. I was just shook up a little. The man drove me oh, home. Jerry, you didn't tell me about that. It was nothing. Jerry, when you knocked on my door... I told door... Ma all about it. About the way you made me come into your room and have some fruit and candy. And how glad you were when you read that letter. That's right. And he told me how you said you would get down to our house tomorrow night if it was the last thing you ever did. That's what you said, wasn't it, Mr. Stone? Uh, I, uh... I tell you, Mr. Stone, this boy of mine is uncanny. Do you know what he told me? He said he shouldn't be surprised if you came down to visit us tonight. Did you say that, son? Didn't you, son? Yes. Tell him your exact words, Jerry. Go on. Mr. Stone is no stranger. Say it, Jerry. I said I wouldn't be surprised if he even comes to see us tonight. He needs us that bad. For Christmas. In those three little rooms on the edge of the city's slums, I learned that human beings can find happiness. 
And don't listen to what your banker tells you. It's a thing of the spirit, not of the pocket. In that shabby little apartment with a cracked linoleum and a threadbare sofa, I learned the magic of the words. Merry Christmas. Copy, boy. Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis, edited by Larry Marcus. Tonight's story was written by Warren Lewis and Lou Russoff with music by Robert Armbruster. Featured in tonight's cast were Kate McKenna, Sammy Ogg, Ralph Moody, Jan Arvan, Bill Conrad, and Gail Bonney. Don Rickles speaking. Our star, Frank Lovejoy, and all of us on Nightbeat wish you a very Merry Christmas. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Saturday morning, hear Mind Your Manners, and later the Somerset Mom Radio Theater starring Peggy Ann Garner. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. From December 21st, 1951, a holiday episode of Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. It's a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. This month marks the 80th anniversary of the entry of the United States into World War II. And over the last few weeks, we've played some holiday programs from the war years. For those of us who didn't live through it, radio at least gives us an idea, and often a palpable one, of what it felt like back then. Roy Otley was probably the most famous African-American journalist to cover the war. He was the inspiration and frequently the central figure of a distinguished, long-running, Peabody Award-winning radio series called New World A-Coming. It aired on station WMCA in New York, and it featured biographies, documentaries, dramas, and a theme song by Duke Ellington. At the height of the war in 1944, the New World A-Coming Christmas program showcased some beautiful renditions of holiday music, impressions of the war in Europe from Mr. Otley, and statements from African-American leaders. One of them was Roy Wilkins, who would go on to lead the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People during the crucial years of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 60s. From the wartime Christmas Eve of 1944, it was billed as a program of Christmas music from New World A-Coming. Today, on its regular broadcast of New World A-Coming, WMCA, in cooperation with the Citywide Citizens Committee on Harlem, presents a Christmas program of holiday music featuring Muriel Smith and the Boys' Choir of St. Philip's Protestant Episcopal Church and statements from the leaders of the Negro community delivered by Dr. Channing Tobias, Lester Granger, Roy Wilkins, and the distinguished author and creator of these broadcasts, who has just returned from a roving assignment in the European theater of war, Roy Otley.
open our program, Muriel Smith, as guest soloist, joins the boys' choir of St. Philip's Church in singing the traditional Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. On this day before Christmas, many vital subjects concerning the Negro people are being discussed not only here in America, but throughout the rest of the world. In our own country, there are nearly 13 million Negroes. In other parts of the world, colored peoples represent two-thirds of the Earth's total population. With a knowledge of these figures, one can easily understand why the subject of the Negro's place in the future peace of the world is of great importance. Dr. Channing Tobias, prominent member of the National Selective Service Advisory Board and one of the outstanding leaders of the Negro people, presents his statement on this subject. Dr. Tobias. Any plan for the future peace of the world that does not include racial equality as a major consideration is not only lacking in realism, but is destined to failure from the beginning. When Woodrow Wilson rejected the proposal for a racial equality clause in the covenant of the League of Nations, it was tantamount to saying that the victorious nations in World War I would continue to hold unbroken the ring of white dominance that then encircled the darker peoples of the world. World War II is in part the result of that decision. The question now is, will the victorious nations in this war heed the lesson of history, or must we have another war? There can be no middle ground. Pearl Buck, whose background gives her the right to speak, states the situation thus. I quote, We must realize, we citizens of the United States, and this whether Britain realizes it or not, that a world based on former principles of empire and imperial behavior is now impossible. It cannot exist. We must make clear our determination for real democracy, for all peoples, with mutual responsibility demanded of all to fulfill its conditions. The deep patience of colored peoples is at an end. Everywhere among them there is the same resolve for freedom and equality that white Americans and British have. But it is a grimmer resolve, for it includes the determination to be rid 
of white rule and exploitation and white race prejudice, and nothing will weaken this will. End of the quotation. Therefore, as we look ahead toward what we call the post-war world, and Negro Americans insist that lynching, segregation, discrimination in the armed forces, and all the other racially double-standard practices that flourish in America today be done away with, they are not entering a group self-interest plea for charity or special privilege. They are simply insisting that America live up to the high principles that motivated the founders. For they realize, as all America must come to realize, that there can be no new world for any part of the nation until America, in an all-embracing sense, becomes what has been expressed in the oath of allegiance to the flag, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. One of the most progressive developments in our history has been attained through the recent organization of Negroes into the trade union movement throughout America. Here is Lester Granger, executive secretary of the National Urban League, discussing the Negro worker in the labor movement today and his role in the war period ahead. Mr. Granger. These radio programs, New World Are Coming, have hammered week after week on the theme that here in New York City, as in every other large city throughout the country, thousands and tens of thousands of citizens deeply rooted in this country by birth, aspirations, and contributions are denied access to full living and to normal self-expression because of artificial barriers erected against their progress by small-minded and short-sighted community leadership. The time has long since passed for word-by-word exposition of the enormity of the social crime perpetrated against these Negro citizens, and also against the larger community of which they are a part. The very fact that we are engaged in a war whose bitterness is without parallel 
the very fact that men and women of the white and Negro race are dying and fighting overseas in support of the principle of equality of opportunity, this very fact should make it unnecessary at this late stage in the war's history to argue painfully on the justice of demands that racial discrimination and separation be wiped out of American life once and for all. What this means to the Negro wage-earning community in its awakened efforts to advance its own security on a level with that of other sections of the working population is one of the major questions affecting the whole future course of American democracy. The complete integration of black labor into the maximum productive capacities of American industry is a problem which must be courageously faced, and it presents new frontiers to be explored and settled by the vigorous movement of American industrial labor. Today, more than 500,000 Negroes, a half million, are estimated to be members of labor organizations. Ten years ago, Negro membership was 80,000. This great increase in organizational activity is due primarily to the extensive campaigns of organized labor. Today, aggressive unionism becomes the major force for the extension of the rights and progress for the Negro race. It's the only segment of our society where Negroes and whites have been able to work together in common purpose. It has also become the political force through which civil rights acts may be enforced in states where they exist and efforts made to break down Jim Crow in states where it has a legal foundation. choir of St. Philip's Protestant Episcopal Church again joins with our guest soloist Muriel Smith in two songs befitting the holiday season. It came upon a midnight clear and sweet little Jesus.
Our next speaker on this holiday program of New World A-Coming is the acting secretary of one of the most dynamic organizations in American life, Roy Wilkins of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. As one of the leaders of the Negro community and editor of the magazine The Crisis, Mr. Wilkins is best qualified to discuss the immediate objectives of the Negro people in the new year ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Roy Wilkins. One of the main objectives of the American Negro in the new year and in the new world of coming is certainly the elimination of separation, inequality, and humiliation based on skin color in the armed forces of the nation. It is natural that Negroes should be thinking more and more of this as the year draws to a close, for it has been the third year of a world war. It has been a year of offensives and invasions by our troops. And it has been a year marked by two mass trials of colored men in uniform, one by the Army and one by the Navy. These two trials, added to the hundreds of instances of mistreatment reported from camps in this country, added to the stories that have found their way back from both the Pacific and European theaters of war, have driven Negro citizens to the conclusion 
that if this democracy of ours is to have an effective army, not alone in terms of a fighting machine, but in terms of the prestige necessary to reshape the world of the future, we must have a democratic army. This means an army where every American can serve alongside every other American without artificial separation based on color or race. It has been said over and over again that Negroes have fought in every war, beginning with the revolution. This bears repeating and repeating again, for it demonstrates more clearly than any thesis that in its dark minority, America has a group willing to die for its homeland, willing even in the face of treatment that in other groups has spawned traitors and saboteurs. In the near future, then, uh, we must have not a white army and a black army, but an American army where each man can serve and, if need be, die with self-respect, love, and honor. Thank you, Mr. Wilkins. And now, we are proud and honored to introduce our next speaker, the distinguished author, war correspondent, and creator of these New World Coming broadcasts, who has just returned from an assignment from overseas. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Roy Otley. Thank you. I returned to America last Thursday. I've seen more than six months of war overseas. I've seen our soldiers, white and Negro, fighting this war. I have traveled on boat, on jeep, on plane, across the English Channel, through the Mediterranean, and over the roaring battlefronts. I have talked to Englishmen, Frenchmen, Belgians, Italians, and Africans. And the opinion over there is this. This is a tough war. This war isn't won yet. Victory can be delayed for a long time. If any one of us here at home slackens down on this war job, I tell you this from my first-hand experience. It's as plain as the day and the night that follows that the war can be shortened right now if the people here at home stay on the job. That is the biggest story that I can bring back from Europe. One more thing. Fascism in Europe is going to go. The people of Europe have been affected, who have been affected by the cruelty and barbarism of the Germans, will see to it that the roots of fascism are torn out forever. There are no dissenting opinions on that subject. As for our own boys who are fighting this war, let no one tell you that they do not know what they are fighting for. Christmas tomorrow sums it up for them in a few words. Peace on earth. Goodwill to man. Peace over the whole earth and goodwill to all men, Christians, Jews, Americans, Scandinavians, Italians, Africans, and white and black.
have been listening to a special holiday program of New World A-Coming. With statements by the leaders of the Negro community, Dr. Channing Tobias, Lester Granger, Roy Wilkins, and songs by guest soloist Muriel Smith, with the Boys' Choir of St. Philip's Protestant Episcopal Church, Walter Witherspoon, Choir Director. Roy Otley, who has just returned from a roving assignment overseas, brought you a word picture of the biggest story in the European theater of war, an appeal for Americans to stay on the job and produce the war supplies so necessary to win. New World A-Coming was directed and produced by Mitchell Grayson. On behalf of Station WMCA and the Citywide Citizens Committee on Harlem, this is George Willard saying good afternoon and wishing our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year of 1945. This is America's leading independent station. New World A-Coming, a program of Christmas music from New York Station WMCA exactly 77 years ago tonight. It came to you from a Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey is our co-producer. Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. I grew up in the 1950s, and one of my most vivid memories of old-time radio was Lionel Barrymore's performance as Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. He played the role every year in parts of three decades, until his death in 1954, and recordings of his definitive Scrooge continued to be broadcast for years thereafter. Not many of those recordings survive, but... As we do every year, we're offering Orson Welles' 1939 version produced for the Campbell Playhouse and featuring an all-star supporting cast of Mr. Welles' Mercury Players, Ray Collins, Everett Sloan, B. Benaderet, George Kouloris, and Orson Welles himself, with music by the extraordinary Bernard Herrmann. On Christmas Eve in 1939, just a few months after World War II had started in Europe, CBS aired this broadcast of the Campbell Playhouse's A Christmas Carol, starring Lionel Barrymore. The makers of Campbell Soups present The Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. clearly a number of ways in which a Christmas carol could be introduced. Myself, I am most struck by the happy fortune that enables us on this Christmas Eve to present Mr. Lionel Barrymore, the best-loved actor of our time, in the world's best-loved Christmas story, A Christmas Carol. When Charles Dickens presented this little story to the world almost a hundred years ago, it found an instant response in the hearts of people everywhere who saw in it, their favorite fictional chronicle of what Christmas is and what Christmas means to all the simple people of the earth. 
From the day of its first printing, families have been innumerable in which there has remained unbroken the tradition that the reading of a Christmas carol was an item indispensable to a proper observance of the most important of days. It is the American way, as we know, to establish traditions quickly where popular instinct and sentiment pronounce them sound. And so it is that today, actually only the fifth anniversary of Mr. Lionel Barrymore's first playing of the part of Ebenezer Scrooge for the Campbell Playhouse, there is, I think, in all America nothing more eagerly awaited, more firmly rooted in the hearts of the radio family that numbers millions than this yearly performance of A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol, as Charles Dickens wrote it, has by common consent long been a classic. Mr. Lionel Barrymore's appearance in it is rapidly becoming one. And now, just before a Christmas carol, Ernest Chappell has a special Christmas greeting from the makers of Campbell Soups. Mr. Chappell? Thank you, Orson Welles. As the old year draws toward its close, we of Campbell's feel a bond of warmth and gratitude toward each of you, our friends. For you see, in homes everywhere throughout the land, Campbell's Soups have been welcomed. Day by day and week by week, you have placed confidence in us and in the foods we make. And there isn't anything we appreciate more deeply than the fact that so many of you have elected to let Campbell's make your soups for you. And so when Christmas comes, we look about to find some way to show our appreciation, some Christmas present, by which to say thank you. The gift we chose five Christmases ago, and have chosen each year since, has become a part of Christmas to many and many a family. It has become a Christmas custom, as Mr. Wells said, to gather around the radio to hear and to enjoy a Christmas carol. And since it is Christmas Eve, we hope, too, that the younger members of the family are permitted to stay up and listen before dreams and visit of Santa. We get a great deal of pleasure planning and preparing this Christmas gift, and now it's ready. Off come the wrappings, off come the tags that say, please do not open till Christmas. Out comes the card. To you, from Campbell's. And here is the gift itself. dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. Scrooge and Marley were partners for I don't know how many years. Ah, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone with Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house, a grim, cheerless place if ever there was one. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, Bob Cratchit, who in a cold and dismal little cell beyond worked at his ledgers. Merry gentlemen, let nothing you despair. 
Yes, Mr. Scrooge. Stop that infernal caterwauling. Yes, sir. Idiotic Christmas carols in my very door. Go on, get away from my door. Go somewhere else and bellow your blasted carols or I'll give you in charge. Sorry, Governor. It's an old custom at Christmas time, you know. Yes, and I don't want any of your old customs. Take your fellow fools and go away. Christmas. Blah. Right, sir. Merry Christmas anyway, sir. Blah. Now you get that letter from Higgins and Blackthorn, Cratchit, and then I want you to finish posting this ledger, and after that you can pop over to Fothergill's and tell Ephraim Fothergill you've come after the 17 shillings and sixpence he's owed me since Michaelmas, and tell him I shall have a constable over there if he doesn't pay up at once. Mr. Fothergill's wife has been ill, sir. Oh, what do I care about his wife? I want my 17 and 6. I, I just thought it being Christmas, sir. Christmas, Christmas. You mention that word to me once more, Bob Cratchit, and I'll... Merry I'll... Christmas, Uncle. Merry Christmas, Bob. Merry Christmas, Mr. Fred. God save you, Uncle. Uh, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle? <laughs> now, I'm sure you don't mean that. I mean just that. Exactly that. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you? You're poor enough. Well, what right have you to be dismal about Christmas, Uncle? You're rich enough. Yeah. Now, Uncle, don't be cross. Well, what else can I be when I live in such a world of fools? What's Christmas to you but a time for paying bills without money? Merry Christmas. A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer. If I could work my will... Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips is be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle. Now, nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it, Uncle. Well, let me leave it alone, then. What do you want? Christmas gift, I've no doubt. I came to wish you a Merry Christmas, Uncle. A Merry Christmas. Much good may Christmas do you. <laughs> Much good it ever has done you. There are many things from which I derived good, by which I have not profited materially, I dare say, Uncle. Christmas among the rest. But I have always thought of Christmas time as a good time. A kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. And therefore, Uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. God bless Christmas. Let me hear another sound out of you there, Bob Cratchit, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. Yes. As to you, nephew, I wonder you don't go into Parliament. You talk enough nonsense. Oh, don't be angry, Uncle. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why can't we be friends? Good afternoon. I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, I've tried. A Merry Christmas to you, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year, too. Ah, humbug. And a Merry Christmas to you, Bob, and the missus, and to Tiny Tim. Thank you, Mr. Craig. Same to you, sir. Good day, sir. Good day, Bob. Nonsense. Twaddle. Flummery. The talking of Christmas and not two sixpences to jingle together in his trousers' pocket. Hey, you there, Bob Cratchit. Come here. 
What are you doing there? I was only putting a bit more coal in the fire, Mr. Scrooge. Seeing it's so cold in there, sir. You put that coal back into the scuttle. A fire. A fire, indeed. I can tell you, if you use coal at that rate, you and I will soon be parting company, Bob Cratchit. You understand that? There's many a young fella like your situation, you know. I'm sorry, sir. My fingers were getting a little stiff with the cold. Well, then put on your mittens. Someone at the door. Go on, see your dish. Oh, yes, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. This is the firm of Scrooge and Marley. Yes, sir. I should like to see the head of the firm, if I may. Oh, very good, sir. What is it? A gentleman to see you, Mr. Scrooge. Huh? Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Marley's been dead these seven years tonight. I'm Scrooge. Well, now, Mr. Scrooge, at this season of the year, it's only fitting that we who are more fortunate should raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. You may not believe it, sir, but many thousands are now in want of common necessities. Right. And hundreds of thousands are in want of the simplest comforts. Uh, are there no prisons? Well, there are plenty of prisons, sir. And the workhouses, they're still in operation, I trust? I wish I could say they are not, but they are, sir. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor, then? Both very busy, sir. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. No, sir, all these institutions that you mention are flourishing. But it's nevertheless true that some additional provision for the poor and the destitute must be made. Nah. A few of us upon change are endeavoring to raise such a fund, you see. And uh, what shall I put you down for? Nothing. Oh, I see. You wish to be anonymous, sir. I wish to be let alone. I don't make merry myself at Christmas time. And I can't afford to help make a lot of idle people merry. I help to support the establishments that take care of the poor. They cost enough. Let those who are badly off go there. Many can't go there, sir. And many would rather die. Well, my advice to them is to do so and decrease the surplus population. Besides, I've only your word for it that all this is so. It's the truth, Mr. Scrooge. Well, so be it, then. It's not my business... It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, sir. I quite understand, Mr. Scrooge. Good Thank afternoon. You. Show this gentleman out. Yes, sir. Uh, this way, sir, please. Sir, I couldn't help overhearing. I should like to contribute, Thrubbins. Thank you. Yes, sir. It isn't much, but it's all I can afford. But there are others in worse situation than I. You're a generous fellow. I wish I might say so of your employer. Cratchit! Yes, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Cratchit! Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yes, sir. Close the door. Yes, sir. Twenty-four, thirty-one. One and carry three. New scarlet tippet for Tiny Tim. A comb for Martha. Thirty-three, three and carry three. A hair ribbon for Belinda. Four, seven, twelve, fifteen... Roger. Yes, sir. It's too late to have you go to Father Gill's. He'll be closed up for Christmas like these other fools. We may as well close up the place now. Yes, sir. It is getting a little dark. Mm. Hard to see the figures. I, I suppose you'll want the entire day tomorrow. If it's quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient. And it's not fair, either. But I suppose I can't do anything about it. 
If I was to stop half a crown of your wages, you'd think yourself very ill-used, I'll be bound. Well, sir, I... Yeah, but you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. It's only once a year, sir. Once a year. Once a year, indeed. A fine excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose there's no good talking. You must have the whole day. Well, we'll see that you're here all the earlier the next morning. You understand? Oh, I will, sir. I will indeed. Good night, sir, and Merry Christmas. Ah. Merry Christmas. Ah. The office was closed in a twinkling, and Bob Cratchit, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, went down a slide on Cornhill 20 times in honor of its being Christmas Eve and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play with his family at Blind Man's Buff. Scrooge, on the other hand, took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern. And having read all the newspapers and spent the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went to his dismal house. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, had to grope with his hands through the fog and the frost to find the door. Scrooge walked through his rooms to see that all was right. Sitting room? Bedroom? Lumber room? All as they should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa, nobody under the bed, nobody in the closet. Close the door. He locked himself in. He double-locked himself in. And took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap. And sat down before the fire to take his gruel. Marley. Marley? Marley! I could have sworn I saw... Humbug. Marley's been dead these seven years. Humbug. All humbug. What I need is a good night. What? What's that? Someone's in the wind, sir. But the door's locked and double locked. Something's... It's, it's coming. Some, something is it... Coming closer outside my door. Ah, I won't believe it. It's humbug still. Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> Marley. Oh no. What do you want with me? I want much of you, Ebenezer. Who? Who are you? Ask me who I was. <laughs> You're very particular for a ghost. All right, then. Who were you? In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley? But you're dead. You died seven years ago. Seven years ago this very night. You are a ghost, then. What's wrong, Ebenezer? Don't you believe in me? I do not. You doubt your senses, Ebenezer? Yes, yes. 
because a little thing affects them. Slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You can't be a ghost. You may be an undigested bit of beef, or a blot of mustard, or a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. <laughs> yeah, there may be more gravy than grave about you, whatever you are. Ah, humbug, I tell you. Humbug. <laughs> I do believe in you. You are a ghost, Jacob. Thank you. Well, why you why do you walk the earth, Jacob? Why do you come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide to witness what it cannot share but might have shared on earth to happiness. Well, tell me, Jacob, did... What is that chain you wear around you? I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard by my own free will. Is its pattern strange to you, Ebenezer? Cash boxes, keys, and padlocks, ledges, and... Yours was as heavy as as long as this seven years ago. You have labored on it since, Ebenezer. Oh, Jacob. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. Comfort I have none to give. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger. Weary journeys lie before me. You travel fast? Yes, Ebenezer. On the wings of the wind. Mm. Seven years dead and traveling all the time. Seven years, Ebenezer. Seven years of remorse. Ebenezer, do you know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunities misused? But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business. Mankind was my business. Charity, mercy, benevolence. They were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Oh, Jacob, Jacob, don't take on so now. Jacob. Listen to me, Ebenezer. I listen to you, Jacob. Go on, Jacob, now. Speak to me, but don't be so flowery. Ebenezer, I am here to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. Do you hear that? Ebenezer. Yes, Jacob. Yes, you always were a good friend to me, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. But, but go on, go on, go on, go on. How shall I escape? Oh, I'm afraid, Jacob. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the only chance and hope, Jacob? It is your only chance and hope. Well, then I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Ebenezer, look that for your own sake you remember what has passed between us. And remember, when the bell tolls one, look for the first spirit. Molly! Jacob Molly! <laughs> 
was lying on his bed fully dressed. Suddenly the curtains of his bed were drawn aside and Scrooge found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them as close to it as I am now to you. And I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child. Yet not so like a child as like an old man. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age. And yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Ebenezer Scrooge. <gasps> Who's that? Ebenezer Scrooge, I have come for you. Oh, you... Uh... Uh, are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold me? I am that spirit. Uh, who, 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 what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. <laughs> Long past? No, your past. But what do you want of me? What brings you here to haunt me? Your welfare, Ebenezer Scrooge. Rise and walk with me. Oh, no, 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 not, not out of the window. I can't do that. I'll fall down. I'm not a spirit. I'm mortal, and I'll fall. Bear but a touch of my hand upon your heart, and you shall be upheld in more than this. Come, follow me. Where are we? What's become of the city? There's snow upon the ground. Where are we? These are the shadows of the things that have been. You recognize this countryside? <gasps> oh, I know every inch of it. Every rock, every tree. And that bleak building over there? Oh, that building. I was a boy there. Yes, I went to school in that Horrible place. Do you recollect that path? <laughs> I could walk it blindfold. Strange you should forget it so many years. Come, let us go closer. Look through the window into that cold, barren room. What do you see, Ebenezer Scrooge? I see a boy. A solitary child, neglected by his family, alone. Yes, yes, I see. I know that boy. Oh, oh, I was so lonely. Poor boy. Your lip is trembling, Scrooge. And what is that on your cheek? It's nothing. Nothing at all. I wish I... Ah, it's too late now. What's the matter? Nothing, nothing. The waits came to my door singing Christmas carols last night, and there was a boy like that among them. A poor, pale, thin little boy in a ragged coat. I should like to have given him something, that's all. Is that all? Come, Ebenezer Scrooge. Let us see another Christmas. Do you know this place, Ebenezer Scrooge? You know it? Know it? This is the counting house where I was apprenticed. Listen. <laughs> it's my old master. Bless his heart. Old Fezziwig. 
my master alive again and hosted one of his Christmas parties. Listen to him. And there's Dick Wilkins. Poor Dick. Dear, dear, dear. Yes, and look, there's Mrs. Fezziwig herself looking younger than any of them. And the tables all loaded with roast and cider, mince pie, and beer. Oh, what a jolly time we used to have. That carefree young man with a light heart and a gay smile. Do you recognize him? Yes, 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 merciful heaven. How happy I was then. A small matter for old Fezziwig to make those silly folks so full of joy. Small matter? Small indeed. Isn't it? He has spent only a few pounds of your mortal money. Is that so much that he deserves praise? Ah, it's not that. It's not that, spirit. Old Fezziwig has the power to make us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or heavy. His power lies in words and looks and in things so tiny that it's impossible to count them up. The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost her. What is the matter? Oh, nothing, nothing at all, spirit. Something, I think. No, no. Speak. Well... Only, it's just that I should like to be able to say a word or two to my club, Bob Cratchit. That's all. Clubs and retire! Bow and curtsy! My time grows short, and we have yet another journey to make. Where now? Come. This is our last visit to the past, Ebenezer. Here, in this little room, with a fair young girl by your side. Do you recognize yourself, Ebenezer? <gasps> no, 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 no. Spare me this. You're older now. A man in the prime of life. Your face has begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. Your eyes are greedy. The eager, restless eyes of a miser. No, no, please. She knows it, too. That girl by your side. There are tears in her eyes. That is little Ebenezer to you. Very little. I know that. Belle, have I changed toward you? When we were engaged, we were both poor. Was it better then? Better to be poor? Better at least to be happy. You're changed. You were another man then. I was a boy. Do you blame me because I'd grown wiser? Have I ever tried to break our engagement? In words, no. Never. In what then? In a changed nature. In an altered spirit. In everything that made my love of any value in your sight. So I release you from your promise. Bill. Oh, at first it may cause you pain to lose me. A very brief pain. But soon it will be dim. Like a half-remembered dream. An unprofitable dream. And you will be glad to be awake from such a dream. May you be happy in the life you have chosen, Ebenezer. For the love of him you once knew. It's enough. Show me no more. Take me home. These were shadows of the things that have been. 
that they are what they are, do not blame me. No, no more, no more. One shadow more. Come. Do you see this man, Ebenezer Scrooge? This man might have been you. And the woman beside him, your wife. And that girl. That girl might have been your daughter, Ebenezer Scrooge. She might have called you father. She might have been a springtime in the haggard winter of your life. Spirit, let me go. Show me no more. Listen now while they speak, Ebenezer. Bell, I saw an old friend of yours today. Who was it? Yes. How can I? It's... Oh, I know. Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge it was. I passed his office window. It wasn't shuttered. And there was a candle inside, so I couldn't help seeing him. His partner, Marley, lies at the point of death, I hear. And there Scrooge sat, all alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, spirit, I can't bear any more. Leave me. Haunt me no more. Take me back. Take me back. listening to the Campbell Playhouse, bringing you tonight the fifth annual presentation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, produced by Orson Welles and starring Lionel Barrymore as Scrooge. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is the WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago. Back to the Campbell Playhouse and our fifth annual presentation of A Christmas Carol. A Christmas present from the makers of Campbell's Suits. On the stroke of one, Scrooge awakened suddenly and sat him bolt upright in his own bed. You remember the words of Marley's ghost and wondered from which direction the second specter would appear. At that moment, nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. And consequently, when no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. Then, as he sat in his bed, he became aware gradually of a great blaze of ruddy light that seemed to shine upon him from the adjoining room got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. It was his own sitting room. No doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove. From every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as had never been known in Scrooge's time or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultries, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, 
mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in, come in, Ebenezer Scrooge, and know me better, man. Sure, sure. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. You've never seen the like of me before. Sure. You're different from the other spirit. You're tall, almost a giant, and that great torch you carry. Its light falls into the homes of rich and poor alike. Spirit, take me where you will. Last time I went against my will and learned a lesson which is working now. If you have anything to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe, Ebenezer Scrooge. Touch my robe. Where you brought me, Spirit? An humble dwelling, an humble street. <laughs> it's miserable enough. Yet there is happiness there. Who, who are these people? Who's that woman and the children? These are the family of your clerk, Bob Cratchit. See his wife, dressed in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, laying the table for their Christmas dinner. And there, assisting her, is her daughter, Belinda, and the young man with a fork in the stuffing. That's Master Peter Cratchit. And the two little Cratchits. Listen, Scrooge. Here, Bless your heart alive, Martha, my dear. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Mother. Merry Christmas. How late you are, my dear. Oh, we had a deal of work to finish up last night, and we had to clear away this morning. Well, never mind so long as you're here now. Sit you down before the fire and have a warm. Lord bless you. Where's Father? He's been to church with Tiny Tim. They'll be along directly. How is Tiny Tim, Mother? Any better at all? Sometimes I think he is. And sometimes I think, oh, dear God, if anything should happen to Tiny Tim. Mother... You mustn't even think of such a thing. Here they are! Tiny Tim. Merry Christmas, everybody. Martha, welcome, my dear. Merry Christmas, Father. And Tim. Merry Christmas, Martha. Oh, Tim, you darling. Oh, Father, I'm so glad to be home. And we're so glad to have you, Martha. And how did little Tim behave in church, Bob? Oh, as good as gold and better. I like church, Mother. Oh, they sang the nicest songs. I hope people saw me there. Saw you there? And why, Tim? Well, don't you see? Because I'm lame. And if they saw my crutch, it might be pleasant for them to remember on Christmas who it was made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Oh, bless you, my son. Are we ready to eat, Mother? Oh, Come on, let's eat. Yes, children, we're all ready. Come, take your places now. And I'll wait your turn. There's plenty of stuffing and dressing and plum pudding for all of us. Martha, you take care of Tiny Tim and see that he eats plenty. He must get strong and well. Now, now sit down, sit down, everyone. And now, my dears, shall we say grace? Spirit, tell me. If Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. Oh, no, 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 kind spirit. Say he'll be spared. Say he'll live. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, Ebenezer, the child will die. Amen. And now, my dear, with such a dinner, a toast. A Merry Christmas to us all, 
And God bless us. God bless us, everyone. And now to Mr. Scrooge. I'll give you a toast to Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed, who pays you all of 15 shillings a week. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast on, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for oh, it. Oh, my dear, the children, Christmas Day. Yes, it should be Christmas Day, I'm sure, on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Bob. Nobody knows it better than you, poor fellow. My dear Christmas Day. I'll drink his health for your sake and the day's, not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. And I say God bless him too, Mother, and everyone. God bless him. nothing of high mark in all this. They were not a handsome family, these Cratchits. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty and had known very likely the insides of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another and contented with the time. And when at last they faded, Scrooge had his eye upon them and especially on Tiny Tim until the last. Many calls Scrooge made that night with a ghost of Christmas present. Down among the miners they went to labor in the bowels of the earth and out to sea among the sailors at their watch. Dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. Much they saw and far they went. And many places they visited but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds and they were cheerful. On foreign lands and they were close at home. By poverty and it was rich. In almshouse, hospital and jail, where vain man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, the spirit left his blessing. It was a long night. If it was only a night... And it was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older. Clearly older. My life on this globe is very brief, Ebenezer. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight at midnight. Hark. The hour has come. Oh, no, no, not yet. Not yet. There are still more things I wish to learn. These you will learn from still another spirit. Still another spirit, Ebenezer. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost that had vanished, and he found himself once more in his bed, in his dressing gown, and his nightcap on his head. He'd heard the clock strike, and then he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley. And lifting up his eyes, beheld... The third spirit. A solemn phantom. Shrouded in black. Draped and hooded. Coming towards him slowly and silently like a mist along the ground. Ah, I know 
are the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You will show me the shadows of things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Answer me, spirit. Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any specter I've seen. Yet I know your purpose is to do me good, as I hope to live to be another man from what I was. Lead on. Lead on. Night's waning fast. Time's precious. Cratchit's home? But it's not the same. Why, why is it so quiet? So very quiet here. <laughs> Mother. Mother, please. Oh, my son. My little son. Tiny Tim. I loved him so. Oh, Mother, dear, you mustn't. It's almost time for Father to be home. Don't let him see you crying. Yes. Yes, Martha. He's late tonight. He walks slower than he used to. And yet I've known him to walk very fast indeed with tiny Tim on his shoulders. So have I, Mother. But he was light to carry. And his father loved him so that it was no trouble. No trouble at all. Bob. Good evening, my dear. You're late, Bob. Yes, I'm sorry, my dear. I went to the churchyard today. I wish you could have gone with me. It would have done your heart good to see how sweet and green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him. Yes, I promised Tiny Tim we'd walk there on a Sunday. Father, dear. It's God's will, Bob. I'm trying to understand it, my dear. My son. My little son, Tiny Tim. And I loved him so. Oh, that's cruel. Cruel. Spirit. Can't you give me one ray of hope that I may change all that? That tiny Tim may live? cheap funeral for Pommel life. I don't know anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind going if a lunch is provided. <laughs> you know, come to think of it, I'll wager I was his best friend. What? We used to nod to each other when we met in the street. <laughs> Spirit, tell me, who is this man that died? Is there no one to mourn the poor creature? No one to follow him to the grave. Perhaps they'll give him a green grave at least, like poor tiny Tim. Perhaps... Spirit, where are we now? Merciful heaven, a churchyard. Overrun by grass and weeds. Choked with too much burying. Desolate. Lonely. Crumbling 
draw nearer to that gravestone, answer me one question. Are, are these shadows of things that will be, or, or are they shadows of things that may be only? Huh? Will, will you not speak to me, spirit? What is that grave to which you point? Writing on that stone. The name on the gravestone is Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge? Oh, no, no, Spirit. No, 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 no. Hear me. I'm not the man I was. Why show me this if I'm past all hope? Tell me that I can change these dreadful shadows you've shown me by an altered life. I'll honor Christmas in my heart. I'll try to keep it all the year. I'll live in the past, the present, and the future. And I'll not shut out the lessons that they teach. Tell me, Spirit. Oh, go on. Tell me. Tell me that I can sponge away the writing on that stone, Spirit. I beg you, Spirit. I beg you. I promise. I promise on my knees. I promise. I promise. I'll. I. Let love and joy come oh, to you and your feet and tell them. It's my own bed. Oh, I'm home. In my own bed. In my own room. And, you and, and the sun. The sun's shining. It's clear. It's bright. No fog. What a beautiful day. Glorious. Glorious. The boy. Oh, boy. Yes, sir. What? What's today? What's that, sir? Well, what day is it, my fine fella? Today? Why, it's Christmas Day. Ha-ha! Christmas Day! Then I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. All in one night. Heaven be praised. How's that, sir? Yeah, listen, my lad. Uh, you know where the poulterer is in the next street? I should say I do. Ah, intelligent boy. A remarkable boy. Tell me, do you know if they sold the prize turkey that was hanging in the window? The one as big as me? <laughs> what a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, my buck? He's hanging there now, sir. That's wonderful. <laughs> Go around, will you? And tell him to send it to Bob Cratchit and his family on Broad Street. And mind you, they're not to know who paid for it. Go along, hurry, hurry, my lad. Here, wait a minute. Here's half a crown for your trouble. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, and a Merry Christmas, sir. And a Merry Christmas to you, my boy. Oh, I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather, as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. Merry Christmas! <laughs> a Merry Christmas to everybody. A Happy New Year to all the world. Woo! Yes, sir. How do you do? I 
I beg your pardon? Well, you, sir, aren't you the gentleman who came to my office in regard to that charity? Why, yes, sir. A Merry Christmas to you. Uh, yes, sir. Allow me to ask your pardon, sir. And will you have the goodness to accept? I prefer to whisper this. But, but, Lord, bless me. My dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? If you please, now, not a farthing less. <laughs> a great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. <laughs> Will you do me that favor? Oh, my dear sir, I don't know what to say to such munificence. No, don't say anything, please. Come and see me. Will you, will you come and see me? I will. I will indeed. <laughs> thank you. I'm much obliged to you. I thank you 50 times. Bless you. Merry Christmas. Next morning, Scrooge was early at his office. He went early for a reason. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he'd set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past, no Bob. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come in. At last he came. His hat was off before he opened the door. His comforter, too. He's on his stool in the jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. 15 at 21, 6 and carry the 1 and 24 and carry the 2 and 31 and 8 and 9. Hello, you, Cratchit! Yes, sir? Step this way, Cratchit, if you please. Cratchit! What do you mean by coming in at this time of day? Oh, I'm very sorry, sir. I am behind my time. You are. Yes, yes, I think you are. Oh, it's only once a year, Mr. Scrooge. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. I'll tell you what, my friend. I'll not stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, Bob Cratchit, I'm about to raise your salary. Mr. Scrooge, are you quite yourself, sir? No. No, thank heaven. I'm not quite myself. Merry Christmas, Bob. <laughs> Merry Christmas, my good fellow. A merrier Christmas than I've given you in many a year. I shall raise your salary, and we'll see what we can do for Tiny Tim and the rest of your family. Huh? <laughs> we'll discuss it this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. Bob, make up the fire. Make it up and, and, and buy another coal scuttle before you dart another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. To Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them. His own heart laughed. That was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, of all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let us rejoice.
have just heard our annual presentation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, starring Lionel Barrymore, brought to you by the makers of Campbell's Soups. And now, here is Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, at this point in the program, it's my custom, as you know, to present you with a few words of introduction, our guest of the evening. With your consent, I shall dispense with this tonight. To introduce tonight's guest to the Campbell Playhouse audience, or to any American audience, is an extravagant and superfluous procedure. For if ever an actor has won for himself a lasting place in the hearts of his fellow countrymen through years of unsparing and inspiring service, that actor is Lionel Barrymore. Mr. Lionel Barrymore. Oh, thank you, Orson Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, this is the fourth year I've had the pleasure of appearing in the Christmas Carol here on the Campbell Playhouse. And I assure you all, it's a pleasure that never tires. As long as I can remember, this has been one of my favorite stories. When we were children, it was read to us regularly at this time of year, as it is to many millions of children right now. <laughs> and like many of them, I'm sure, the three of us, Ethel, Jack, and I, with the aid of a sheet and some old ironware, made a play of it. As I remember, we had three Scrooges in that production. Uh, who played Tiny Tim? I think we had three Tiny Tims, too. But seriously, I can think of no part that I've enjoyed playing again and again as much as I have the part of that squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, Ebenezer Scrooge. And I can think of no happier or more suitable choice for the makers of Campbell Soups to offer the people of America as their Christmas present each year than Charles Dickens' well-beloved story, A Christmas Carol. Good night, Orson. Good night, everybody. And a merry, merry Christmas to you all. Good night to you, Mr. Barrymore. Thank you, sir, and a merry Christmas to you. Ladies and gentlemen, next Sunday night, we're happy to announce our version of a great and truly American story by a great American novelist, Come and Get It, by Edna Ferber. Against a background of the mighty forests of Miss Ferber's own Wisconsin, it tells a stirring tale of the men and women who live and die in the woods in order that lumber may come down the rivers every spring into the cities of the modern world. Like so many of Miss Ferber's epic romances of American life, it was made from a best-selling novel into a highly successful motion picture. Now we bring it to you on the air. The story of a man and his son and the girl they both loved, Lotta. Lotta, played for us by one of the loveliest and most accomplished of Hollywood's younger dramatic actresses, Miss Frances D. And so until next week, until come and get it, my sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, and all of us in the Campbell Playhouse remain as always obediently yours. But just one moment, please, Benny, excuse me. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the night before Christmas. And all through the Campbell Playhouse, not a creature is stirring that doesn't join Lionel Barrymore in wishing you a merry, merry Christmas. This goes for all of us, from my sponsor myself, or for all of us, from Don McBain, who runs the machinery in the control room, to Miss Helgren, who types the Campbell Playhouse scripts, a Merry Christmas. From Benny Herman and his band of Merry Melodians, Merry Christmas. From Max Tears, a canary-throated chorister, a very Merry Christmas. And from Harry Esman and Cliff Thorson and his crew of sound effect technicians, a Merry Christmas. And from Orson Welles and his considerable aggregation of dramatic talent, who include, among others, Mr. Everett Sloan, 
Mr. Frank Reddick, Mr. Erskine Sanford, Mr. George Kalouris, Mr. Ray Collins, Miss Georgia Backus, Miss B. Benaderet, and many, many others, a Merry Christmas. How about it, everybody? A Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That's right. And now, as Tiny Tim says... God bless us, everyone. <laughs> Makers of Campbell Soups join Orson Welles in inviting you to be with us in the Campbell Playhouse again next Sunday evening when we bring you Edna Ferber's Come and Get It with Miss Frances D. as our guest. Meanwhile, if you have enjoyed our fifth annual presentation of A Christmas Carol, won't you tell your grocer so this week when you order Campbell's Soups? This is Ernest Chappell saying thank you and a very Merry Christmas to you all. The definitive radio adaptation of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol as it appeared on this date 82 years ago in 1939. It brings us to the close of this Christmas Eve recollection from the big broadcast and will end as we began with Marion McPartland and Phil Markowitz playing Irving Berlin's White Christmas. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz wishing you a safe, joyous, and meaningful holiday. Thanks for listening, and please join us for a more contemporary Christmas carol from Ford's Theater and WAMU tomorrow night at 7, and then a Christmas night recollection at 8. Merry Christmas to all, and to all, good night, everybody. <laughs>